The following program is intended for mature audiences. People of Earth, attention. People of Earth, attention. This is a voice speaking to you from thousands of miles beyond your planet. Look, I love Gary. He's fantastic. And you're listening to the Martian Revelations. Strap in tight. Go to www.thefacesofmars.com. That's www.thefacesofmars.com. According to a new report in the New York Times, the U.S. government may have physical evidence of, and we're quoting, off-world vehicles not made on this Earth. Surely the days of the great Martian Revelation are upon us. out there in the bite waves of the internet and wherever you're at down through time monitoring this show. I'm Gary Legia, the Mars Revealer, known also as the Mad Martian. I would like to welcome you all to the Martian Revelation that is upon you all again now. Welcome to the Bazaar. And today is September 19th of 2020, or the 20th. 
depending upon your time zone as this airs through time. And you're listening to this broadcast through Global Enlightenment Radio Network stream and also through the Martian Revelation Show YouTube stream live at www.thefacesofmars.com. That's www.thefacesofmars.com. That's right, which everyone knows is your defense for the war which we all fight against the evil dark mission is. We're all leading you away from the light and manipulating you all instead to help you open your wallets and your pocketbooks to only join their dark side as special clubs and special subscriptions that only allows them more power to continue to mislead you all and to steal you all away from the truth that they themselves not wish to face or even admit to. Hell, let alone even talk about. Yeah, UFO Diaries. Faces on Mars. Cover-up controversy. Down through time. Huge conspiracy. It is a conspiracy. Okay. <laughs> That's right. But the Martian Revelation is, however, 100% listener supported with no special clubs or any special subscriptions to join. So if you're a listener, please help support the Martian Revelation show again, which is your only defense for that war which we all fight against evil dark missioners. <laughs> And we're working with the goal each week to bring you the truth, one show at a time. So please share the facesofmars.com link. And I must also ask you all, though, that you please donate to the show with anything that you could afford. Five bucks, ten bucks, twenty bucks, whatever you can. By clicking on the big red, white, and blue American donate button at the top of the show page to allow it to continue being here for you down through time. Especially now, because as it turns out, my system is outdated, and I need a new system because this one's starting to take a crap. So I don't know what to say there except but ask. So your listenership and your donation support actually counts, and it helps us all to not only fight, but to win against those evil dark missioners. <laughs> as well as to secure a future which we all could literally make the Martian revelation our reality. By what? By making our fate. But you know how else you can help make our fate? Is by advertising or sponsoring this show. You can advertise your business, your products, your books, whatever it is that you would like to advertise. Or even if you have a message that you would like to have advertised on this show, heard all around the world and kept in the archives as well, where it will always be heard. And those archives are hit constantly. But no special clubs or special subscriptions. So if you'd like to advertise on this show, or sponsor it. You especially need to jot this down, MarsRevealer at gmail.com, MarsRevealer at gmail.com, that's my email, and using that email address of MarsRevealer at gmail.com, you can send me messages, questions, music, or artwork, or guest requests, or even if you wish to request to be a guest, or anything else that you would like to speak to me about. Especially if it has to do with any old yet new image data showing other faces of Mars taken by the Viking orbiters from 1976-82. That was seen in a video that's also seen on the facesofmars.com page called UFO Diaries. Yeah, UFO Diaries. Cydonia, Discover the Earth-Mars Connection. It's only a 22-minute long video, and you'd be very surprised to see it was more than two-thirds of it. And one Richard C. Hoagland, who is also the same person who encouraged me years ago to investigate into these images and into that video. Yeah, UFO Diaries. And the dude is serious legwork, because I'm just too swamped at present. That was his exact words. Now, down through time, we're more acclimated. We understand what that means. What's Trump trying to drain now in the Patriots? The swamp. 
the dark side, the bad guys, the controllers, the ones that want to keep us down on the farm. So Hoagland was telling us in code back then, he was too swamped at present. He's part of the swamp, which does not want the secrets out. Again, and upon my follow-up investigations and that, getting to the producers. The fascination of the faces on Mars for me and in, in, uh, in my fascination with Richard Hoagland, who's been the, the big mover and shaker and all of that. The investigation led back to him, and then all of a sudden he wanted it stopped to derail it. Not just derail it, but try to derail me, to destroy my life and this show. <laughs> To prevent you all from seeing and knowing about the truth or even just asking questions. No matter what still the truth is, questions need to be asked and answered to get to the truth. Not what you think you know or what you think you want to know or what you think the answers are or to steer people in a certain way to think the way that you do while asking for special clubs and special subscriptions and not allowing what the people would really want to ask basic questions to get the truth of. Well, I'm suspicious. Uh, we got him from Hoagland, we got him from NASA, and there you are. I mean, one of them's going to say, yeah, those are ours. Which are our pictures. It led back to him. The great mystery at this point seems to be if the Enterprise mission and its colleagues can find all this and so much more, then why can't NASA? Or is there something more? Is it possible that they have seen what we have seen? and also understand what's really there, but have a reason to keep silent. He says to stop further investigation into mysterious pictures. Mr. Hoagland says they are evidence of intelligent life. You, you, you need to get more down in the weeds and look at some of the weird stuff going on behind the scenes around. Those faces of Mars that are seen in that video are not seen in any NASA public archive, especially for Viking, as it literally took me a year and a half to process the Viking Orbiter archives, and they're not in them. But the thing is, long story short, the producers, Charles E. Sellier of Once Grizzly Adams Productions, God rest his soul, and Lee Eric Shackelford had stated that Richard Hoagland provided those images. I mean, Mr. Sellier in an email wrote to me too, these files came from Richard Hoagland. Why would he be needing them from us? Especially after all this time, I add. Since that video was made, it was released in 93. That means Hoagland provided them with those images before 93, at least. You know, a lot of people will think that your conspiracy theories make you stark raving mad. Well, I'm suspicious. So check out that video and check out the faces images that are in that video that I'm on the hunt for. So if you're someone who works on the inside that knows about these images or has access or knows the information that could guide us to where they are. <laughs> you can remain anonymous. Your anonymity will be respected and upheld, and we all respect you and commend your nuts for doing so in advance. I could be and will be your public sector. You can remain all of our private sector. Or even if you have any other knowledge of any other, even modern space imagery that shows very implicating things that we the people have a right to see and to know about and that we should know about, about what's really not just on Mars but anywhere in space. Even if you're for an international space agency who hears this show, which I know they do, especially in Russia and Europe, the commie Chinese, I don't want none of you. But I encourage the rest of you all also to email me at marsrevealer at gmail.com. Again, that's marsrevealer at gmail.com.
just remember also that if you're listening to this Martian Revelation show, then know this, that you are the resistance down through time. And the times are truly bizarre and ever ratcheting up to the great day of the Martian Revelation that cometh. And we got an interesting show for you all tonight. We're going to have a special guest, Andrew Lound, on with us. But until then, we should get into the news. Because it's very interesting where things are going. And how all the twists and turns are going in regards to life out there in space. Not just on Mars either, but also on Venus. But that being said, let's get into the news. And this first one is from September 17th. Using shitting to manufacture tools and shelters on Mars. No, not shit. We've went over that article in the past of where they want to use shit to actually help make habitats and stuff. But this is called shitting or chitin, C-H-I-T-I-N, to manufacture tools and shelters on Mars. A simple manufacturing technology based on shitting, one of the most ubiquitous organic polymers on Earth, could be used to build tools and shelters on Mars, according to a study published September 16th in the Open Access Journal. PLOS One by Javier Fernandez of Singapore University of Technology and Design and colleagues. With plans to revisit the lunar service and eventually send a crewed mission to Mars, future space exploration missions are likely to involve an extended stay. You're damn right! It's about colonization, not just about touching down the flag and leaving. But for such missions, or perhaps even settlements, survival requires meeting basic human needs. One material that can be used to meet those needs is shittin, which is produced and metabolized by organisms across most biological kingdoms. Shittin is a primary component of cell walls and fungi. The exoskeletons of arthropods, such as crustaceans and insects, and the scales of fish and amphibians. Due to its ubiquity, shittin will likely be part of any artificial ecosystem. In a new study, Fernandez and colleagues used simple chemistry suitable for early Martian settlement to extract and manufacture a new material with minimal energy requirements and without specialized equipment. They made this material by combining shitazan, which is a mineral designed to mimic the properties of Martian soil. The authors then used the shittiness material to construct a wrench and a model of a Martian habitat, demonstrating that this material enables the rapid manufacturing of objects, ranging from basic tools to perhaps even rigid shelters, which could support humans in a Martian environment. According to the authors, this approach may be the key to our development as an interplanetary species. Dr. Fernandez notes, against the general perception, Bio-inspired manufacturing and sustainable materials are not substituting technology for synthetic polymers, but an enabling technology defining a new paradigm in manufacturing and allowing to do things that are unachievable by the synthetic counterparts. Here we have demonstrated that they are key, not only for our sustainability on Earth, but also for one of the next biggest achievements of humanity, our transformation into an interplanetary species. Fernandez goes on to further state, the technology was originally developed to create circular ecosystems in urban environments, but due to its efficiency, it is also the most efficient and scalable method to produce materials in a closed artificial ecosystem in the extremely scarce environment of a lifeless planet or satellite. So that's something to think about, and you know, people are putting their brains together and trying to figure out all this shit going on in order to pull off all this shit. 
In my opinion, we should have been long on our way beyond this already, but that's okay. These things are being looked at, and who knows, a whole multitude of all these ideas may be and should be put into use as we transform our humanity off of this planet into the stars. So it's pretty interesting. We'll see where that goes. But now, as many of the listeners of this show appreciate, many do have an interest in Venus. The compelling aspects of why we don't hear much about Venus. Well, not long after certain listeners to this show commenting and emailing me or calling or messaging me about it, Venus comes up. It's as if someone was listening. But now, once again, from five days ago, strange chemical in the clouds of Venus defies explanation. Could it be a sign of life? And this one's from September 14th. Is there life on Venus? A new discovery suggests we should look harder. Really? But discovering life beyond Earth may well start with a sniff. A whiff of some chemical. Of some shittin'? <laughs> that scientists struggle to explain without invoking a strange, shadowy microbe. The first step has happened on Mars and on a few distant moons, and now scientists suggest on Venus. A team of astronomers announced... September 14th that it had spotted a chemical fingerprint of phosphine, which scientists have suggested may be tied to life in the clouds of the second rock from the sun. The finding is no guarantee that life exists on Venus, but researchers say it's a tantalizing find that emphasizes the need for more missions to the hot, gassy planet next door. Yeah, no shitting. For many years. And listeners to this show can appreciate when we had Mr. Alfred Lamont Weber where we talked about life on Venus and the fact that he says Venus is inhabited. We got to get him back on the show to talk about that. But the interpretation that is potentially due to life, I think, is probably not the first thing I would go for. Victoria Meadows, an astrobiologist at the University of Washington who is not involved in the new research, told Space.com. She was not involved in the research, but she's an astrobiologist who looks for life in space, okay, would not go that far. That wouldn't be the first thing that she would go for. Well, I don't know. Those who are looking into these fields for life in space, to me, are the most pessimistic, downplaying sort I have ever seen. But don't take my word for it. You've been to schools and colleges. You tell me. But it is an intriguing detection, she said, and one that emphasizes how we overlook our neighbor. <laughs> Indeed. We have some explaining to do, she continued. You're damn right. Especially have you, how you overlooked it for so many years. And not going back. But at least you're bringing it up again. But this discovery especially is just another reminder of how much more we have yet to learn about Venus. But the new research builds on the idea that although the surface of Venus endures broiling temperatures and crushing pressures, conditions are much less harsh high up in the clouds. Well, I want reaffirmations and visual facts about what they're talking about. Because they're talking about boiling temperatures and stuff, right? But yet, when uh, Soviets landed there, they took a picture. I didn't see everything bubbling and booling and spoozing, but I'm sure it could have been really hot. But anyway, that's just my note from an image that they have given out long ago. And scientists have realized that Earth's own atmosphere is full of tiny life as well. Suddenly, microbes in the sweet spot of Venus's atmosphere, where temperatures and pressures mimic those on Earth, don't seem quite so outlandish. 
think of Cloud City people in Star Wars, but the scientists behind the new research wanted to look for phosphine. The researchers have recently wondered whether the chemical could be a good biosignature, a compound astronomers target in looking for life. It should break down quickly in atmospheres that are rich in oxygen, like those of Earth and Venus, and on Earth, when it isn't being made by human industrial processes, it seems to be found near certain kinds of microbes. Jane Greaves, an astronomer at the University of Cardiff in the UK and lead author of the new research, realized that she could use a telescope that she knew well to check for it in the atmosphere of Venus, she told Space.com. Looking for it in Venus might be really peculiar, but it's not hard to do, and it wouldn't take that many hours of telescope time, Greaves said she thought at the time. Why not give it a go? So on five separate mornings in June of 2017, the astronomers used the James Clerk Maxwell Telescope in Hawaii to stare at Venus. And then the observation sat around on a computer for a year and a half, Greaves said, without her managing to find time to study him. I don't know. I think that would really be bullshitting because I wouldn't be letting that thing sit there, all that data, especially if it didn't take too long to study it. With a telescope, it shouldn't take that long to study the data thereafter. But who knows? Again, turtleneck, stale pay speed policy agenda listeners of the show could appreciate. But I thought, well, just before we throw this away... I'll have a final go at analyzing the data, she said. A final go? I, do, I thought you said this is your first go. You left it sitting around for a year and a half. But there was this line, and it just wouldn't go away. And it seemed like it wasn't imaginary anymore. I was just completely stunned. Hmm. Yeah, me too. But are you as stunned by your incompetence and your admission of ignoring it for a year and a half and also admitting that you were going to throw it out to get another look? That line is one stripe of a spectrum, a chemical barcode that scientists can read in a telescope's observations of light. Each chemical has its own unique fingerprint of lines and blank spaces, matching up lines, and you can identify a mystery substance. But the observations in the new research focus on only one of the lines in phosphine's barcode, Meadows said, so she isn't quite convinced the new findings represent a conclusive identification of phosphine. Okay. So put most possibly, which I would say deserves a Venusian mission, at least to skim the atmosphere or to orbit inside the atmosphere. How about that shitting? But until we go get another piece of that barcode, we can't discriminate between which kind of barcode we're looking at, Meadows said. I think they make a good case for it being phosphine in there, but I think they don't have what I would consider a slam dunk detection yet. The researchers haven't tackled that aspect yet, but Greaves and her colleagues did arrange to use an Atacama large millimeter, submillimeter array, ALMA, in March of 2019 to look for the chemical again and make sure the detection wasn't just a telescopic hiccup. Now, why not use the Hubble or any of the other ones in space to zoom in on Venus and be able to detect these things without atmospheric interference? But, you know, I don't know, I'm crazy. Remember that. Alma gathered a few hours of data, which also revealed more phosphine than the scientists expected from the previous data. Not a huge amount in the grand scheme of things, but about 20 particles out of every billion, according to the research. I was braced for disappointment, but it was amazing, Greaves said. That abundance is significantly more phosphine than she had expected to see. The way the telescope's observations work, the chemical must have been more than 30 miles above the Venusian surface. 
But that's about the same altitude of which a different recent paper with some shared co-authors suggests microbial life could survive in spore form. So Greaves and her colleagues set to work considering what might have created all that phosphine. Perhaps volcanoes erupting or lightning striking or perhaps meteors melting in the atmosphere or winds pulling particles off the planet's surface. But none of these explanations seemed sufficient to them. As usual, struggling to make more conventional explanations check out does not mean that scientists think that they found life. But the possibility of tiny Venusian bugs has gradually become more plausible, and researchers focus on our neighboring world say that's important, whether or not there's actual life to find. But either it's a mistaken identity, but we don't know what the chemical is, or some strange chemistry that we are not aware of, there we go again, or biology, Sanjay Lamea, an atmospheric scientist at the University of Wisconsin-Madison who wasn't involved in the new research, told Space.com. They like to get opinions of others, but it's a question of if it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, walks like a duck, do you call it life or not? We won't know until we get there and find out. Well, that was a very philosophical sentence, but in essence, it's right. We do need to go there. But as tantalizing as the detection of phosphine on Venus may be, scientists, again, not involved with the new research, worry that it makes a few big leaps even before the massive potential implications of a detection of life. Well, I think it implicates enough demand to go there and study it, doesn't it? Again, orbit inside the atmosphere. Let's be more impressive now. They should do that on Mars as well. Some weren't convinced that phosphine was a reliable fingerprint of living organisms. The single phosphorus molecule surrounded by three hydrogen molecules is, on Earth, a rarity and short-lived. Some industrial processes produce it, and it's affiliated with some types of bacteria also living in particularly strange environments. It quickly transforms in Earth's oxygen-rich atmosphere, and should also in that of Venus as well, which is intriguing for scientists looking for alien breath. In order to breathe, you must be alive. But the excitement about phosphine may well be premature. Again, maybe. Go there. Stop your bullshitting. <laughs> but the phosphine link to the biological world is very, very faint and needs to be corroborated simply by going to the lab and doing experiments. Tatjana Milojovic, a biochemist at the University of Vienna, not involved in the new research, also had reported. But she argues that phosphine has only been found near microbes, not produced by it, and that the compound seems to be released by the chemical decay of biological material. I guess, in essence, the death of life. That doesn't mean it's a chemical of biological material of which was alive, a chemical process is being done that throws off this phosphine? That's interesting. So before scientists can use phosphine as a potential biosignature, they need to get into the lab and really understand whether and how microbes produce phosphine, a process that scientists eyeing Mars completed for methane long ago. Again, you're able to get orbit inside the atmosphere of Mars, collect many samples and with all these multi-million billion dollar experiments to look for possible signs of life instead of actually detecting it can also be placed there to determine what gases is being picked up as it zooms inside the atmosphere of Venus. That would be a great plan to utilize. But alas, those experiments aren't quite as simple for phosphine 
Matthew Pasek, a national biologist and geochemist at the University of South Florida, who has worked on phosphorus cycling issues, but was not involved in the new research, had also reported. Phosphine is kind of nasty, so we don't like playing with it. So we don't actually understand how it gets made through natural processes very well, Pasek said. It's always been kind of relegated to the background of phosphorus chemistry. But notice earlier, remember, it also says that human industrialization also causes it. So again, that's another possible signature of life, not just life, but again, Alfred Lamont Weber, intelligent life on Venus. But Green said that she's confident phosphine is a biosignature on Earth, but does hope that the scientific community can take on these sorts of lab experiments and otherwise build on her team's work. The idea of phosphine as a biosignature may have another fatal flaw. Venus is now the fourth planet where scientists have detected phosphine, two gas giants, and Earth. The new detection shows phosphine levels on Venus about equal to those on Jupiter and Saturn. But that's significantly more abundant, 1,000 times more abundant than on Earth, Pasek said. For the one place that is likely biological, there's a lot less of it even there, he said. So it's kind of weird that if it is biology on Venus, that's a whole lot of phosphine that is generating for weird reasons. <laughs> Bizarre. It is Venus, after all, our mysterious neighbor. Yes, one they admittedly admit they don't really know much that about the surface, but then what they tell us and the boiling temperatures and this and that, what's going on beneath the surface. Again, I allude back to give a shout out to Alfred Lammermont Weber. Definitely got to get him set up again to be on this show. But Greaves and her colleagues plan to continue studying Venus from the ground, although she said that the coronavirus pandemic Chinese Kung Fu has interfered with those observations, yes, and many of our life's daily living norms as well. But Meadows said that she hopes for analysis that would cover some of the other lines in the phosphine barcode. And of course, some of the phosphine investigations can be done right here in laboratories. But the details of this massive puzzle aren't likely the sort of thing that can be seen clearly from the surface of Earth. Again, and spacecraft tend to zip around Venus, keeping a safe distance from its hostile environments. Designing machinery that can withstand its clouds and surface is so difficult that no spacecraft has ventured into the atmosphere in decades. Well, again, hop back on the idea I just gave you. Get on it, because that's the most obvious place it needs to be in order to study this shit in. But it should implore NASA and other space agencies to look at Venus as a target for astrobiology investigation, which means that they should pump some money into the development of capable aerial platforms, LeMay said of the new research. Indeed, and aerial platforms also around orbiting Venus, as well as in the atmosphere of Venus one day. But there's no shortage of ideas to choose from when it comes to dreamed-of Venus missions that could tackle the atmosphere, whether your taste runs to more traditional designs or unorthodox options like blimps, balloons, or commercially built spacecraft. It's time to figure out Venus, James Garvin, a planetary scientist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland, who was not involved in the new research, but is the principal investigator on a Venus atmospheric probe mission that NASA is evaluating, had also reported. If we ignore it too long, we could be missing the forest for the trees, and that would never be good. He thinks engineering has caught up with the challenges of the Venusian atmosphere. I would agree. 
but the time is right for thinking about what the atmosphere is telling us within itself. It's just this beautiful laboratory next door that has been tough enough that we've ignored it for 35 years, Garvin said, at least publicly, huh? But the atmosphere is kind of calling us, whispering in the night, hey, I might have something that you should think about here, and we haven't been thinking about it. So the research is described in a paper published September 14th in the Journal of Nature Astronomy. So lo and behold, a day or two later, out comes Jim Bridenstine, stating that Venus is one stop in our search for life. Today we are on the cusp of amazing discoveries that could tell us more about the possibility of life off the Earth. In fact, astrobiology, which includes the search for life elsewhere, is one of our key priorities at NASA. Well, it is now, right? But uh, the Spirit and Opportunity rovers enabled NASA to discover that Mars had a massive ocean, a thick atmosphere, and a thick magnetosphere that protected it from the radiation of deep space. But uh, just to reinforce the listeners out there, that but what they did not do was have the enabling to actually discover life on them, which should have been its number one priority as well as the other factors I just mentioned. But in other words, at one time, Mars was potentially habitable. Well, not to be answered on those missions, but the Phoenix lander discovered pure water ice on Mars, and the Curiosity rover found complex organic compounds and methane cycles on Mars. But alas, not life, huh? But the probability of finding life or past life on another world keeps going up. Right, but the probability of you not sending the tests to do those definitive experiments aboard those missions you just mentioned, they were not equipped to look for any evidence of life, let alone signs. And the next mission, the Mars Perseverance Forever, as well as uh, Rosalind Franklin, which will be going later, of ESA, they don't have any experiments on board to actually detect life, just to look for the possible signs of possible past life. Evidence be damned of what it may be seeing or rolling right over. But now the Perseverance Forever rover is en route to Mars on NASA's first dedicated astrobiology mission, again, not to look for life. But samples returned from this trip could conclusively determine whether microbial life lived on Mars. Yeah, samples returned more than a decade from now, if everything works. We'll come back to the Earth not in cislunar orbit, to deem it safe and check it there, and then in, in low Earth orbit for as a secondary wall before sending it back to Earth, but sending it back directly to the Earth. Again, the outer limits, the Sand Kings. Watch it. But upcoming missions like Dragonfly to Saturn's moon Titan and the Europa Clipper to study Jupiter's ocean moon Europa will once again assess the possibilities of life on other worlds. Really? Without sending any experiments that actually detects life. That's the problem that you're not including on these fascinating missions. But data from Saturn's moon Enceladus and other bodies point to many discoveries yet to be made. Yes, but also if you put on an actual experiment that detects life. But NASA's deep space astrophysics capabilities are also being used for astrobiology. Our telescopes not only peer into other galaxies and discover exoplanets around other stars, they also assess exoplanet atmospheres to find the elements necessary to host life and even look for atmospheric biosignatures. An intriguing discovery recently released by the Royal Astronomical Society about the atmosphere of Venus could also point toward biosignatures. 
as we seek to expand our knowledge of our own solar system four spectacular missions are being considered for up to two discovery missions to be selected next year among them are a national biology mission to neptune's moon triton and a geological mission to the most volcanically active planetary body in the solar system jupiter's moon io the other two missions being considered have proposed missions to venus yes and i want to also state that they should be sending orbiters and package deals like the viking and other and like what the chinese are doing landers as well as orbiters but one is focused on understanding its atmosphere and the other is focused on understanding venus's geological history that means its surface there is no doubt that nasa's science mission directorate will have a tough time evaluating and selecting from among these very compelling targets and missions but i know the process will be fair and unbiased really then send the right experiments on board to ask these determining questions and have them answered right away. But the U.S. is also partnering with Europe on another proposed Venus mission called Envision that could be selected to go to our next-door neighbor. As is normal in science, the more we learn, the more questions we have. Right, but yet you don't go putting on the correct experiments. So again, more bullshitting. But this is the virtuous cycle of discovery, including the discovery of potential biosignatures on other worlds. You see, they love to speak such great things, but their actions state another. But we at NASA are incredibly fortunate to have so many opportunities to pursue such talented scientists, engineers, and partners capable of pursuing them. Yes, then why haven't you utilized them? But each day gets more exciting for all of us, and I can't wait for the next discovery. Really, well, that's how I feel. But eternal next nail, pace, policy, speed, agenda, it has been. But that's its official position. Venus is putting back on the target range publicly. Now, it's also interesting from September 18th by a Gabby Arancibia spacecraft to fly past Venus weeks after signs of life detected in planet's atmosphere. But a spacecraft with the intended destination of Mercury is expected to make a close flyby of Venus in mid-October, providing scientists with the chance to gather additional information to back up recent revelations that the distant planet may in fact harbor life. Hopefully it has some good uh, LIDAR or anything to peer through the clouds so we can study the surface as it flies by. That would be a great genius thing to do. Uh, people to include on those missions there. But the spacecraft in question, Bepi Colombo, is part of a joint international project between the European Space Agency, ESA, and the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency, JAXA. The craft's mission is intended to study Mercury's composition, geophysics, atmosphere, magnetosphere, and overall history. I don't see how you could, you know study its overall history just with a flyby, but although Bepi Colombo may provide scientists with a vast amount of information on Mercury in a few years time, the space mission will be able to give officials further insight into Venus sooner, since the craft will have to conduct two Venus flybys as it attempts to use the planet's gravitational pull to curb its speed before heading to Mercury slingshot in essence. So according to the ESA, the first of the two flybys is expected to take place on October 15th. Although the date of the second flyby is yet to be officially confirmed, a tentative date of August 10th, 2021 has been noted. While the agency has already in indicated that the instruments aboard Bepi Colombo have been designed to specifically function for Mercury's environment, 
The ESA has stated that the mission still has the capabilities to possibly investigate Venus's atmosphere and ionosphere. I'm betting that it wouldn't does. But it's kind of perfect timing, John Herbert, whose team from the German Aerospace Center helps to manage instruments on the ESA's orbiter, told Forbes. We are now seeing if our sensitivity is good enough to do observations. Helbert told the outlet that he believes that the Mercury radiometer and thermal imaging spectrometer, the MERTIS device aboard ESA's orbiter, would be best at studying Venus's atmosphere, but that ultimately there is still a possibility that it may not be successful, since the device was made for Mercury and will be at a distance of over 6,200 miles from Venus. However, the second flyby, which will place the Bepi Colombo at a distance of about 340 miles from the planet, may prove much more fruitful, Helbert said. And on the chance that it's a success, Murtis will likely be able to confirm whether phosphine gas, potentially a sign of microbial life, exists on Venus. Well, how about this genius idea? Again, they clap themselves on the back for enabling all these entrepreneurs and people and visionists and capabilities on these missions. None thought of to put a pair of sub-satellites as they zip around Venus, they jettison from the main probe and then orbit themselves around Venus to study. We have subsats now. Again, listeners to this show could appreciate Wally and Eva. But anyway, I'm crazy. But the agency would have to get very, very lucky to detect phosphine on Venus during the first flyby, Helbert said. Again, the sub-satellites would have done the job if fitted and appropriated. But anyway, an international team of researchers stunned many in the science community earlier this week after they announced that they discovered potential signs of life on Venus. Their study, which was published September 14th in the journal Nature Astronomy, detailed the traces of phosphine had been spotted in Venus's hazy yellow clouds. I'd like to bring up this article, which is from the Daily Star, believe it or not just from two days ago, as life on Venus would prove there are aliens all across the universe, an expert insists. And this is an exclusive UFO investigator, Nick Pope, thinks finding other life forms in the solar system would be the most significant scientific discovery in history. Well, that's fine, and that's great that Mr. Pope said that. But, you know, Dr. Gillivin has already said that and stated that after life was already detected on Mars, he said that very thing. But yet, look, how his name and his statement is being able to be uploaded by Mr. Nick Pope. No disrespect to Mr. Pope. An alien expert has claimed discovering life on Venus would prove there is life all over the universe. UFO investigator Nick Pope thinks it would be the biggest and most significant scientific discovery in history if it is proved that there are living beings on the planet. This week, scientists revealed that there could be living organisms floating in the atmosphere around Venus, raising hopes humans are not alone in the solar system. Mr. Pope, who once investigated UFOs for the Military of Defense, told the Daily Star Online that this could be the biggest and most important scientific discovery in history. That's the third time now we're reading that sentence. But the implications are profound because if life arose not once but twice in our solar system, it suggests life isn't a cosmic accident or a miracle, but something that happens naturally and frequently. Again, Dr. Gillivan also stated that on this show two years ago. But this bombshell discovery suggests the universe is teeming with life. It's estimated that there are 100 billion stars in our galaxy and 100 billion galaxies in the universe, and those are the lowball figures. So who knows what might be out there? 
that's why we've got to go. But researchers have spotted phosphine, a rare and toxic gas in the atmosphere of the planet closest to Earth, suggesting that it may be home to alien life. Experts think that the sheer quantity of the gas on Venus suggests that it is a sign of alien life in space. The discovery is not a direct observation of life on another planet, but as we've heard, but the sheer quantity of phosphine on Venus cannot be explained through any known processes, leading researchers to suggest that it is a sign of alien life in our solar system. Remember, it comes from biological degradation through a chemical process, they thought, right? As well as what? Human industrialization. So that makes you wonder. But the surface of the planet is very hot, making ground conditions very uncomfortable with temperatures reaching as high as a brain melting 427 degrees Celsius. What would that be Fahrenheit? Why don't they ever put the two? But the environment in its upper cloud deck is thought to be more hospitable. Despite this, scientists had long thought the possibility of life on Venus was unlikely. But Mr. Pope wants NASA to send a mission to the planet, but warned that they will need to be careful about any samples that they bring back to Earth. Yeah, but he should advise them that about Mars, too. Again, cislunar orbit, as well as low Earth orbit. Or maybe even on a base on the moon. But he said that this would have to be done under the strictest imaginable conditions. If people think COVID-19, Chinese Kung Flu, is deadly, alien microbes could be truly apocalyptic. Again, the Sand Kings. But there would be no vaccine or a cure for the Venus flu. The UFO investigator thinks any intelligent life forms on Venus would be as wary of humans as the other way around. And Mr. Pope added that Venus is a hell planet. Any humans who landed would be instantly crushed by the immense atmospheric pressure. So any more complex life would be equally hellish, like something out of the Alien movies. So that's something there to ponder from Mr. Nick Pope. They're getting others to weigh in. And guess who? It's no surprise that weighs in Russia itself. From September 16th, head of Russian space program says Venus is a Russian planet. Ha <laughs> Well, remember, it was their probe that landed that caught a picture or two. But Russian Space Agency Chief Dmitry Rogozin calls Venus a Russian planet on Tuesday at an industry exhibition taking place in Moscow. Why? No open fair flag waving parties allowed? Like they say, has to be on the moon and elsewhere? But the unusual comment followed the recent high-profile discovery of significant sources of phosphine gas in the planet's atmosphere, a possible sign of life. Look what this is all brewing and stewing. I told you, bizarre. Our country was the first and only one to successfully land on Venus, Rogozin said, as quoted by the Moscow Times, referring to the country's successful explorations of Venus in the late 60s, 70s, and 80s. Ross Cosmos piled on, writing that the enormous gap between the Soviet Union and its competitors in the investigation of Venus contributed to the fact that the United States called Venus a Soviet planet in a statement quoted by Euronews. The Soviet Union launched a number of Venera spacecraft to the hostile planet, which completed a number of firsts, including the first orbit and crash landing. Venera 7 eventually became the first lander to make a successful landing on Venus in 1970. The year was born, sending data back to Earth for 23 minutes before it succumbed to the planet's hellish conditions. But NASA, in contrast, has never focused on Venetian exploration, though it did send an orbiter and a probe to the planet in 1978. 
Ross Cosmos has announced plans to launch an independent exhibition to Venus. Such a mission would follow an already planned collaborative mission with the U.S. called Venera D. But Rogozin pushed back against the recent findings that suggest that life could exist in the planet's atmosphere. The Russian spacecraft gathered information about the planet. It is like hell over there, Rogozin said. So is that enough? We should take their word on it, that it's not worthy enough to go study? How do we know that's all you really got to see there and know about there? I'm supposed to believe them, right? So are you. So all the policymakers that spew us all this shitting in the universe going on. It only makes you wonder. But they really want to lay their flag there as a claim and stake. But yet the moon's fair game, Mars is fair game, as well as the asteroids and anything else, right? Rogozin, stop your bullshitting. And which brings us to this article by Megan Bartels earlier today. After a tantalizing discovery of Venus, what could an astrobiology mission look like? I don't know. That's what I've been trying to help envision here. Is, you know, roundabouts, sub-satellites, insertions, and, you know, orbiting inside the atmosphere. I mean, so many ideas. But suddenly a mission to investigate Venus might be hospitable to life. After all, it doesn't seem quite so outlandish. Astronomers announced this past Monday of September 14th that they have identified phosphine, a chemical that some scientists have proposed may be a sign of life in the clouds of Venus. The new research relied on data from two ground-based telescopes, and scientists already have plans to tug a little more on the Venusian mystery from Earth's surface. But if we really want to know what's going on with the strange chemical in the thick, acidic clouds of our planetary neighbor, we're going to need to get a lot closer, even right into Venus's clouds, again, where no spacecraft has ventured in 35 years. This is something more that we can't explain about Venus, Sanjay Lemaire, an atmospheric scientist at the University of Wisconsin-Madison who wasn't involved in a new study, had reported, Venus has got more questions about it than Mars, which is why we are suggesting that Venus should be considered an astrobiology target. Really? More questions about it than Mars? I don't think so. I think Mars outweighs or they just may be about the same, judging by what we know of the atmospheres and, and whatnot, as well as the surface morphology and archaeology and other interesting geologic features. <laughs> but it's definitely an astrobiology target. But again, remember, look what they're sending now. They're not sending anything to actually detect life. Just only looking for the past signs of possible life. How's that for your money's worth? But it's not that scientists haven't wanted to explore Venus more thoroughly, of course. No, of course not. It was the policymakers. But the planet is seriously rough on the vital organs of a spacecraft. Take a computer, some electronics, and a bunch of ultra-sensitive instruments and send them through acidic clouds to a surface that's essentially a broiling pressure cooker. And, well, it isn't pretty. In fact, no spacecraft has ever survived the full two hours on the surface of Venus. And I will say that it's definitely because of a lack of trying Okay, but Venus is ready for the Armada to get there, but it's less forgiving than Mars. James Garvin, a planetary scientist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland, who wasn't involved in the new research, but is the principal investigator on a Venus atmospheric probe mission that NASA is evaluating, 
had reported to space.com. That said, engineers have been busy in a decade since the last spacecraft ventured into Venus's atmosphere when the Soviet Vega probes did so in the mid-1980s. With the added impetus created by the tantalizing new research, scientists hope that agencies may now turn their sights to more and more daring Venus missions. I think this is catalytic, Garvin said, on the potential impact of the new research on the motivation to explore Venus. To me, it's called a no-brainer. But after a mad foray, a flourish of attempts to understand Venus in the 70s and early 80s, there was a hiatus, and it's actually been 35 years since any mission by any country on this planet has visited the atmosphere of Venus. Right now, Venus is just one spacecraft companion, Japan's Akatsuki Orbiter. Akatsuki launched in 2010, and while it flubbed its first attempt to orbit Venus later that year, it succeeded on the second attempt in 2015. The spacecraft has spent its tenure studying the weather on Venus and looking for flashes of lightning, all from a safe orbit, of course. NASA, however, hasn't had a dedicated mission to Venus since the Magellan probe orbited from 1990 to 1994. But the new research may prompt NASA to end that drought. It's time to prioritize Venus, NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine wrote in a tweet on Monday about the phosphine detection, which he called the most significant development yet in the building the case for life off Earth. Really, again, ignoring Mars and everything else that was there, turtlenecks now pay speed policying us all. But uh, NASA is evaluating two Venus-targeted proposals in this current round of so-called discovery projects, the same class of mission that includes the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, the Geophysics InSight Lander on Mars, and the upcoming asteroid missions Lucy and Psyche. Other space agencies are also considering a visit. India's space agency is considering a mission called Shukrayan-1, an orbiter that would launch in 2023 and study Venus's surface. Russia is considering a hardier version of, of its Soviet-era landers, a longer-lived surface mission. The European Space Agency is evaluating a proposal for a mission called Envision, a geology orbiter that would launch in 2032 and could tell scientists about alternative explanations for the phosphine detection, such as by determining whether the planet hosts active volcanoes that could be producing the gas. And we also know that there's a lot of life that exists around active volcanic vents on and above the surface on Earth, under the oceans as well. So scientists say that the engineering is ready for such missions, and we long ago hit the point where we had machinery worth sending. It's so frustrating that we have the technology and have had much of this technology for so long, and we're just ready to bring this to bear on Venus now. Darby Dyer, a planetary scientist at the Planetary Science Institute and a deputy principal investigator on the second mission proposal NASA is currently considering. Venus offers a smorgasbord of really cool missions that you can do, but yet it's been held in check for all these years, again, by American commie traders. But there are plenty of other Venus mission concepts out there that aren't formally under agency review, ranging all the way from modest endeavors to NASA's most ambitious and most expensive category of projects on a scale of the agency's sophisticated Mars rovers, curiosity, and perseverance forever. But we'll need several spacecraft to really understand the story of Venus. There's not a single mission, LaMea said. It's a collection of missions because there are so many different investigations that not a single mission can address all the questions, and it'll be a fight to decide which mission should be flown first. 
Venus scientists, even those proposing specific missions, regularly emphasize that because Venus is so understudied, any mission to go there at all would be an improvement over the status quo. That's for sure. But in the context of the phosphine detection announced this week, there are two ways future missions could build on the new research. Either spacecraft could confirm the detection itself, or they could develop our larger understanding of Venus, helping scientists interpret the detection. The new claim of detecting phosphine of Venus is based only on observations taken by ground-based telescopes, but those observations pose two key challenges. The first is that there's still a chance the detections weren't actually of phosphine. The scientists studied only a small window of the spectral signature, a sort of chemical barcode in which the researchers saw only what corresponded to the line of the code. In order to more confidently identify the chemical, scientists will need to be able to see one or more other lines of that signature. A second challenge is that the telescopes the scientists use can't identify precisely where in Venus's atmosphere the phosphine might be. All scientists know so far is that it must be more than 30 miles above the surface of Venus. Without a more precise understanding of the signal's altitude, it's difficult to know what environment the chemical may be in. Again, that makes sense, but there's only one way to find out. But breaking the decades-long drought of atmospheric probes of Venus should help scientists to manage both of these challenges. Of course, we'd like to see really any kind of mission to go back to Venus, Sarah Sega, an astronomer at Massachusetts Institute of Technology and co-author on a new research said during a news conference held this past Monday on the 14th. Something that's capable of measuring gases in the atmosphere. Something that has a so-called mass spectrometer that can identify larger complex molecules that could only be associated with life, she said, describing her mission wish list, adding that a balloon might be the best design for such a spacecraft. While it isn't a balloon, one of the two missions NASA is currently considering would be equipped to tackle the phosphine mystery head-on, Garvey said on the mission proposal he leads called Da Vinci Plus. Short for Deep Atmosphere Venus Investigation of Noble Gases, Chemistry, and Imaging Plus. Da Vinci Plus is a two-part mission that includes a probe that would travel through Venus's entire atmosphere to the planet's surface in about an hour, sampling it as it goes, and an orbiter that would study the atmosphere of Venus's daylight side and the terrain of its night side for a full Venusian year, or 225 Earth days. Again, I think adding an extra probe to orbit inside the atmosphere around the planet would also be very useful in concurrence with those other two. So think bigger. The probe's descent in particular would tell scientists whether the phosphine detection was real and confirm how prevalent the gas is in the Venusian atmosphere. It would also give scientists a thorough understanding of chemistry on Venus that is severely lacking, stymieing researchers' attempts to interpret data. And while the mission may sound a bit unprecedented, it isn't really, Garvin said. The chemical laboratory at the heart of Da Vinci Plus would be essentially the same as those in NASA's Mars Curiosity and Perseverance Forever rovers and the Dragonfly drone that the agency will send to fly on Saturn's strange moon Titan, a mission due to launch in 2026. The same way that we brought the story to Mars with the Curiosity and soon Perseverance Forever rovers, we want to invert that and bring it to the atmosphere, essentially developing a flying sampling rover that instead of driving, it's flying and falling, Garvin said. 
we have to bring the best instrumented chemistry lab to the samples that we want to study in the Venus atmosphere with 21st century gear. The other Venus mission NASA is currently evaluating could build on the phosphine detection in a different way. Veritas, short for Venus Emissivity, Radio Science, INSAR, Topography, and Spectroscopy, wouldn't probe the atmosphere directly and wouldn't be able to confirm the phosphine detection up close. Instead, it's an orbiter that would use radar and spectroscopy to study the surface of Venus. How about throwing LIDAR on there also? Kick out! But Veritas is designed to produce a high-resolution topographical map of Venus and identify what types of rocks are found on its surface and where. To get the first look at global composition, at least, is going to tell us so much. Even if the method is not everything you might wish for, Sue Smirker, a planetary geologist at NASA's JPL in Cali and the principal investigator on the Veritas proposal, had reported, it's going to be, I think, really spectacular in terms of enhancing our understanding of surface chemistry. Yeah, and other things, surface features, and many other aspects. But the data collected by Veritas could help scientists address ongoing mysteries like how long Venus had an ocean and how quickly it disappeared or whether there are still active volcanoes spewing chemicals into the planet's atmosphere from its deep innards. Understanding these issues could determine whether the detected phosphine can be explained without invoking life. But the only way to really go and find out is not by guessing, but by sending something there and more than one something to find out. But anyway, Veritas would also build the foundation for future missions, particularly by mapping the planet's surface in detail. We've had so much success at NASA having global reconnaissance to find the scientifically most compelling targets and then coming back to follow up, Smirker said. Yeah, you need a map, Dyer added. Veritas and Da Vinci Plus are two of four concepts from which Thomas Zerbuchen, NASA's Associate Administrator for the Science Mission Directorate, will select one or more missions next spring. Like his boss, Bridenstein, Zerbuchen expressed excitement about the new phosphine finding, calling the paper intriguing, although he has less gung-ho in his remarks. We trust in the scientific peer review process and look forward to the robust discussion that will follow its publication, Sir Buchan wrote on Twitter, referencing both the consideration of Eritas and Da Vinci Plus and NASA's involvement in the SA's potential envisioned mission. One thing is for sure, if any of these other missions visit our neighboring world, Venus scientists will be thrilled. Well, get on it! The 20s could be a rebirth of using Venus as a clue to the solar system and accessible universe the same way we've used Mars and the moon and now Jupiter's moon Europa so compellingly, Garvin said, adding that he hopes space agencies use this decade to gather the data that has been so sorely lacking about our neighboring world. If we could do that in the 20s, the 30s will erupt into this beautiful masterpiece of new kinds of missions. Titan, hopefully also to Venus, Mars, women living on the moon. I mean, it's going to be a different space age, Garvin said. To be honest, I wouldn't be surprised if we wake up in the 30s and say, oh my God, how could we have missed this? Which is, I'm sure, what their plan is. Oh my God, how could we have missed this giant face staring up at us from the region called Cydonia on Mars? Oh my God, how could we have missed all these pyramids? Oh my God, how could we have missed all those nuts out there claiming by the images that we have given out that there are archaeological features of them? Holy shit! And that being said, I want everyone to please go to www.thefacesofmars.com.
at www.thefacesofmars.com. That's right. Scroll on down the show page, see the information about tonight's guest, Andrew Lound. Click on his link to his website, and be sure to scroll on down the page under that to check out the new face of Mars I found, the face of Acidalia. It's really on the border of Cydonia. It could still be considered Cydonia, but it's Acidalia region. Check out that mug there and watch the video I recently did last week called The Face of Acidalia. And under that, check out Dr. Mark Carlotto's latest before Atlantis article, Ruins in the Stands, Evidence of a Lost Civilization in Central Asia. And under that, check out those moon videos and his analysis of those moon videos of UFOs coming around the moon. Hard to refute, I dare you. And under that, click on his link there for Before Atlantis. New evidence suggesting the existence of a previous technological civilization on Earth. Again, by Dr. Mark Collado. And under that, check out my friend Francis Walsh show Collision Course Sundays at 8 because we all know he's got that cosmic obsession. And of course, under that, check out UFO Diaries. Cydonia, Discover the Earth-Mars Connection and the images attributed to that. Scroll on down more to page. There's plenty more things to see and do. And check out Rummy Bari Lawn's exclusive Mars images. Click on those images to go see the latest exclusive Mars images people are finding there on the surface of Mars. Now being said, it's time to go a break. But listeners to this show can appreciate We have a motto here, and it's sure as hell true. Pack them and smoke them, because you're definitely going to need them when we come back on the Martian Revelation. I'll be back. Don't run. We are your friends. Imagine that everything the U.S. government has told you about UFOs since Roswell has been a lie. Imagine that in the decade after Roswell, the government attempted communication with the aliens and succeeded. And after that, in absolute secrecy, things had gone far, far beyond this. Now imagine that tomorrow, the whole secret program is going to fall apart, and every terrible thing is going to come out. All we have left now is a prayer. Morning Star Pass, the collapse of the UFO cover-up, a fictional but unflinching and terrifying look inside the UFO cover-up, the secret government that supports it, and the world of the aliens themselves, and then how the whole secret kingdom ends. Morning Star Pass, a book that pulls no punches and does not sheath the sword unblooded. Morning Star Pass, plunging boldly where no other book has ventured, captures the whole wondrous nightmare that the UFO experience has become, from bizarre experiments performed on helpless abductees, to horrifying mutilations, to beyond, to the world of secret government supported by its own secret police, to the aliens in their secret bases, and finally to the beckoning stars themselves. The book does this by placing the cover-up, humanity, and the earth in a real cosmos, where humanity and its passions are a part of the universe, not an aberration on it. Then comes the fall of the cover-up and a climax of violence and desperation to leave the human race facing the multi-hued stars with eyes open and seeking its place in them. The sands of time have run out for the cover-up, for against it, leading an army of investigators and warriors, comes Cassandra Chen, beautiful, driven, and doomed. Who can save her and us? Haha, <laughs> you'll have to read it to find out. Morning Star Pass, the collapse of the UFO cover-up by Victor Norgard. Get yours today. You can find this at www.firstbooks.com.
This is your leader. Adjust the focus until the picture is sharp.
Welcome back, everyone. I'm Gary Legere, the Mars Revealer, known also as the Mad Martian, your host of the Martian Revelation. That is upon you all again now. So now that you packed them and smoked them, let's introduce our guest, Mr. Andrew Lound. And Andrew Lound has supported astronomy and space science public awareness in the United Kingdom since the late 1970s, having organized and funded many public activities in support of Birmingham Museum of Science and Industry. He was also co-organizer of the National Astronomy and Space Flight Shows, shows of a style that changed the public view of astronomy events. He conceived and managed a large number of public science projects using developing technologies, including telerobotics. Hmm, that should be interesting to speak about. Andrew is a man of many interests who specializes in space science and astronomy from both the current and historical perspective. In these fields, he is renowned for his extensive knowledge, which is always up to date. His research into the 18th century lunar society revealed many new and exciting discoveries about their activities, including the discovery that Matthew Bolton, a man ahead of his time, had built an astronomical observatory in the grounds of Soho House, Birmingham. He worked in cooperation with the Planetary Society, which is the world's largest space interest group, for over 30 years. He is a graduate of the London Academy of Radio, Film, and Television, where he studied presentation techniques and television production. He can be heard regularly on BBC Radio WM, where he is known as the urban spaceman and WM's Titanic expert. Yes, I'll have him get into that. It was part of his bio, but too long of a bio. But he can tell you what that's all about. And uh, he's very uh, fluent in the facts and the history of the Titanic. But uh, he has a master's degree in astronomy with particular emphasis on planetary science. He worked with the California Institute of Technology, JPL, on promoting the Cassini mission to Saturn, acted as project manager of the Antoniadi Project, a British concept of a space probe to the Hellas region of Mars. That should be interesting to know about. Developing new presentation techniques involving augmented reality to promote space science to the general public. He also has a B.A. in Media Studies, which he uses in conjunction with his knowledge of space science to promote astronomy and space exploration to the general public. He has acted as an advisor on a number of television and film productions as well as appearing in many of them. But he stays the highly acclaimed exhibition and program of presentations in commemoration of the Apollo 11 moon landing in 2019. And again, this is a short bio of him, but I just thought about providing the most relevant of his bio that's focused on space. And you seem like a really interesting fellow there, Andrew, and thank you very much for joining us this night, or rather, your early morning <laughs> over there where you were at to participate with us and help expand our bounds of knowledge as we make our faith usher in the Martian revelation. So how are you doing today? Well, I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having me on in that great introduction. Thank you. It makes me sound as if I knew what I'm, know what I'm talking about. <laughs> well, it seems like you do. I mean, quite a bio you got there and the history behind you. And, you know, I, I was taken back by, well, amazed, really, about your knowledge of the Titanic. Now, I, and I again, I apologize leaving that out of the bio, but maybe you would like to inform the listeners, so as they go to your website, let them know after getting to space and everything, take them to the tour above the Titanic. Can you tell them a little bit about that, sir? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's quite interesting, because when I was, uh, everything seemed to happen to me when I was five years old. 
my my father who who wasn't a greatly educated man he was a very bright man but mm-hmm. but he asked his boss what's the best way really to introduce his young son to things and the boss simply said introduce him to a lot of subjects and he'll pick up one or two of them i didn't i picked up all of them and titanic was actually one of them uh, having seen the film a night to remember uh, on tv and i was told that that really happened and then strange enough when i started work my first boss um harry seaborn um he was very much into the titanic and he got me in touch with the titanic historical society based in massachusetts and they had great documents and the documents included um, details about one man called william edward hipkins who apparently was a visit visiting the avery uh company in milwaukee well i knew avery's were a wayne scale company based in birmingham so i started to do research into him and the whole thing exploded completely out of control as it always does with me and uh, ended up doing a lot of research into local connections and then uh, details of the ship itself including the astronomy on the night the titanic went down the astronomy so the space issues so what was fascinating in the skies about that night any forebodings or chicken bones <laughs> being rolled or anything like that uh, attributed well, it's interesting because it was actually a perfect observing night. You had a dead flat, calm ocean. Uh-huh. The sky was very steady. It was so steady, in fact, that people said that the stars were brighter than ever before and they didn't twinkle. If they're not twinkling, it means the atmosphere is steady. And with a glassy ocean, the sky reflected perfectly in the ocean. And they couldn't really see a horizon, which wasn't a good idea. There was no moon in the sky that night. So it made it more difficult to see any objects ahead, such as icebergs, because there was no real reflection from a bright object like the moon. So that made life even difficult. No wash causing the big problem. So the sky actually added to a slight problem with the whole thing because it was too perfect a night. Perfect for astronomers, but not very good if you're trying to see objects coming towards you. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing about, about it was the, the moon was made its closest approach to the, to the Earth, uh, January 1912. And the alignment of the moon and the sun was such that in fact we had the highest tides possible uh, on the Earth at the time. It's, it's an event that happens on, on every few thousand years, so it's actually quite a rare occurrence. Mm-hmm. This actually lifted up ice uh, from, the, from their base in Canada and moved more ice into the North Atlantic than would normally be the case. So in fact the whole scenario of the astronomy of it is actually interesting. And then many people thought they could see ships in the distance and what they probably were observing was actually stars in fact probably observed jupiter as well setting at the time and they mistook jupiter as it was setting for being the masthead light of a ship in the distance well like also on the roads at a distance with the heat coming off the roads what are they people it's like the form of a what's that word mirage mm. you can get some you get some very bizarre effects when the sky is in the perfect condition wow uh, you get two you get very two interesting conditions taking place you get a it, one in the daytime and one at the night. And I spoke to some merchant sailors about this, and they said, oh, you get some good conditions. And I was explaining about the, the perfect conditions at night, and they said, yes, that would be a problem, because then you would get what is called s- simply this blacking out, whereas a whole place looks as if it's full of stars, and you can't see the horizon. Wow. Also, in daytime, you can also get the sky color matching the ocean color. And when that happens, you get a complete fog out in daylight, and you can't see anything either. And in days before radar, ships simply have to stand still. Because the Titanic didn't, it kept plowing on. That's right. It had, uh, 
you know, an unsinkable mission uh, accomplished, and so much was going on. Now, you, I believe, what do you do? Like, you you do, like, recreations or plays or something? I know I didn't put any pictures or anything up there, but I see you dressing the part. Yes, I, I my presentations are very different. I mean, it doesn't matter whether it's the Titanic presentation, a history presentation, or an astronomy presentation. Uh-huh. I will actually dress for the part. And I think that's important because they're not so much, um, uh, as you might say, I'll put a picture on behind me here so you can actually see me in 18th century garb. <laughs> um, and what I tend to do is, the, the biggest problem is, is, and it's something I learned as time went on, you had presenters standing behind a lectern, usually with a nice tight jacket on, reading from their notes and then pointing to a picture on the screen. I thought that was a bit boring, really. And I saw too many very good subjects being destroyed by the presentation style killing it. So what I wanted to do is almost create a live documentary, if you like. So if I wore the clothes of the part Mm -hmm. in the 18th century, when I talk about lunatic astronomy, astronomy in the 18th century, I'm wearing the right clothes. And that actually makes me stand differently and makes me appreciate particularly how people were at the time. The audience immediately then are brought into that period and start thinking of context of that period. The problem we have with history, especially even in history of astronomy, in any history subject, Mm -hmm. is people have a mistake of taking a history subject and placing the context of today onto that subject. That's dangerous because you're not understanding what people of the period were thinking. You've got to keep it in context of the period. And the idea of the costumes, the props, all adds to this to actually make it more more interesting and, and quite dramatic. Because when I do Titanic, of course, I do a bit of reenactment on the stage as well. I've got the full white Starline uniform on, and I do a bit of a reenactment of um, um, second officer, uh, first officer Murdoch trying to lower a lifeboat when Bruce Ismay then steps around in and steps into it. So it's actually quite an interesting. Um, it's an interesting performance. It's not your usual. I don't call them lectures. They're just the presentations because they were a lot more dramatic and a lot more fun. And I guess yeah. I've now started to duo presentations with a professional actress just to add to more chaos. Yeah, that sounds awesome, and that's true because then even the viewer that's paying attention anyway, it allows them to also take part and appreciate yeah. the historical aspect and what's really been tr- being trying to be shown, especially if you're accurately prevent- presenting those facts, which it sounds like you are. i got to check them out. Again, I have access to your site now. It seems very extensive with things um, uh, now. So those are one of the issues. What was the other subjects until you got the space that fascinated you, that got you to where you are today? Well, yeah, I mean, space came at the same time because the Apollo program was getting going and I was interested in that. Um, It was general history. The Second World War was a particularly interesting thing and local history was quite fascinating because Birmingham, where I live, has a very interesting long history associated with it. It used to be the centre of the Industrial Revolution, centre of industry at the turn of the last century. Um, Big connections with the United States, of course, Birmingham had with the period as well, which is quite important. Um, So all that sort of merged together. And as I've gone through my life, you get all these quick turns and twists. For instance, William Hipkins, uh, the man I studied who who was uh, on the Titanic, he worked for a company called Avery's. Now, Avery's bought a place called Soho Foundry in 1895. Mm -hmm. That still exists. Soho Foundry was run by Matthew Bolton 
and James Watt as the world's first steam engine factory. Wow. So suddenly I've got this collision of all my interests running together, which was really kind of strange. And in the end, I ended up working for Avery's for a period of time, wow. uh, looking after their museum. So it's almost as if all my interests sort of all merged and collided together. I'm not particularly a person who believes in fate, but it's very strange how it all did interweave with each other. And what I'd learned about Matthew Bolton suddenly became very important mm. for understanding Soho Foundry, for understanding William Hipkins, and for mo moving my actual life forward. Yeah, that sounds definitely excellent. Yeah, fate, or it's astronomical that you are who you are in those places that you just happen to be. Uh, why, bitch, why worry about it when you're there and, 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 and you're happy if it's who you are, if it's who you are. And I, I believe in fate, and I believe that we're on the path to make our fate now. Tosher and the Martian Revelation, you may or may not agree with that, but I think somehow you might. You, you're a visionary. I can see you're a free thought, free thinker, yeah. and, uh, and, and you have fun at it. You, you make it fun. I mean, that, that's a good thing. Uh, at least from what I see so far and what I'm uh, feeling from you, sir. All right, so at that time, at the same time, space. Now, how old were you then, and then at what point did you get in connected with being part of the push to space and as we're going? Well, everything really got started when I, I, I was five years old on holiday at Great Yarmouth, and I and asked a stupid question. The whole thing about science. I always do. <laughs> yeah. And I always point this out to my presentations where, because you get the, the children will always ask the question and their parents won't because their parents don't want to look silly. And I've always pointed this out. There is no such thing as a stupid question. There really isn't. You either know something or you don't. Right. And the only reason the professors know it is because they've learned it and read it in books. There's nothing magic about them. And therefore, some of them like to pretend they're magic and they're not magic. <laughs> they've learned it. And therefore, it's important to ask questions. And I asked a silly question of my dad. I said, where did the moon come from? And he said, well, a piece of the Earth came off, and that's what formed the Pacific Ocean, which was one of the theories at one time. And I didn't actually believe that, funnily enough. As a kid, I thought, I'm not too sure about this. So right. I started to read upon it myself. And, of course, it was the era of Apollo, which was a very exciting period. And so everything sort of got tangled up then, and I just could have ran with it. And interestingly enough, at school, uh, in the English school, which I attended, they didn't actually teach astronomy at all. There was a little bit in the history and the physics class, but not much. And I thought, this is not very good. This is because I'm doing my own astronomy. I've got a little telescope and I'm doing my own thing. So I gave a presentation to a group of, of, of kids at school where I, where I was um, work, uh, where I was where I was studying. And one of the children's parents was actually a caretaker at a local community centre. He said, that's rather interesting. He said, would you actually be happy to do that presentation at the community centre for other people? I mean, yeah, go on. Being a kid, you'll just say yes for anything. Yeah. Anyway, I just went for it. And then I thought, well, we'll make this a bit more interesting. And in those days, we had the old Hanimex slide projectors, mm -hmm. which had a long cable which operated it and it got jammed half the time, but there it was. And then I thought, I want to be a music here. So the only music we could run with at the time was a cassette recorder. So we had a cassette recorder there, which had to also operate. Um, and we actually had some quite good fun with it. I had a few little props, nothing spectacular. And most of the images of the planets then were artists' impressions right. or telescope images. So it was quite interesting. And the first presentation was called The Tour of the Solar System, which has now become the Grand Tour of the Solar System. Mm -hmm. And it's currently version 97 at the moment, I think because it's changed since the day I first started doing the presentation of that when I was seven, all the way up to now, 
and it's constantly changed. And I can actually see the history of how we've improved looking at the images of it. And that's really how it got going, purely because we, we just didn't have access to it at school. And therefore, I just went out and did it myself instead. And that's good because with the history behind it, especially for younger people today that, you know, just take cell phones and, uh, you know, PS4s and everything that they have access to now compared to how I was growing up, let alone when you were, uh, to appreciate the history behind it when you get to live and see it all and it makes it more impressionable that you're able to give the impressions. And that's a God-given gift, sir. And uh, And to impress upon them. And it's all, again, of those realities that are that things, you're always changing. The more data you get, the things change and you adapt with it. I don't, you know, I, I know you're familiar with the term of grumpy old men as some certain scientists. <laughs> and, you know, but how do you think about that type? And what do you say to those type of scientists? Of course, without sounding disrespectful, they're tenured or they have degrees and, you know, you don't want to insult no one. And as well as, how do you explain that to the youth that may raise an eyebrow at them and then maybe turn them off because of that? Yeah, I mean, I mean UK is often, I mean, I had a pro, I've had a lot of problems in the UK, strangely enough, because when I started doing the presentations and I started doing this kind of thing, I had the grumpy old men um, come to me and say, oh, yes, 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 yes. That's not the way you do things. You don't do things like that. We shall show you how to do things. Ah. And the way they were doing it was switching people off. I thought, I'm not doing it that way. I'm sorry, I'm not doing it. Like, but you must do it. No, I'm not doing it that way. I'm doing it my way. That's right. Um, it didn't go down very, very well. And I've had one or two very well-known, actually, senior people in the UK go out of their way to try and stop me doing one or two of the things I like to do. Incredible. And bad luck, as I say, because I'm going to do it this way. And what I can say to you, the, the big revelation for me in, in presenting space science was Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan came to the UK and he did the, a set of lectures at the um, Royal Society Christmas Lectures. Mm -hmm. And that was a revelation because here was a scientist very gifted, very knowledgeable, not behaving like a crusty old scientist, <laughs> doing it quite the opposite, making it very informed, letting people ask daft questions, talking to people, getting them physically involved in experiments on the stage. That's how you do it. That's how you switch people on to the subject. And of course, as he pointed out, which you rightly say, things change and you might have to change your mind on something. I mean, if I had to sit one of the exams I did for my for my degree course i would actually fail it now if i gave the same answers i gave all those years ago right. because time has moved on you have to accept that and unfortunately we get a lot of people and it does happen in, it happens in all walks of life as well as science but yes. particularly it's big science where scientists will publish he's become fame or she has become famous for a particular theory they've got published they've been very successful and they're very happy to sit on that then and this is it we've made it and they sit on their laurels. And that happens with all sorts of things. And the best scientists and the best in any, any subject and in anything in life are those that think, well, wait a minute, I can move on a bit here. I could keep going. And unfortunately, there is this sense of sitting there. And young people, you've got to, you know, the thing to them is you keep striving forward. Keep asking the questions. Keep questioning people. Because I tell them when I do a presentation, don't take my word for what I'm saying here. I'm giving you some information here. Run away and double check me. Have a look. I might be wrong on something here. And if I'm wrong in here, here's my email address. Let me know. We'll, we'll talk about it. We'll do a show and about it. 
Yeah, we'll do it again. <laughs> yeah, indeed. But that's, but that's the point. You've got to keep questioning these people. And and you'll find there's a lot of people are very happy with all this thing. I mean, a lot of people are very keen on it. But a lot of people, and mainly in government-based institutions, where, as you said, you've got tenure and you've got things like this, so you're very settled. And what you don't want to do is, therefore, rock the boat because you're settled. And there's there's nothing worse in the world than feeling settled and comfortable um, because that's not a good feeling. I don't ever want to feel comfortable. I always want to feel this if I really need to push the edge again. Alive, yeah, being the, alive, you know, yes. th thinking, and uh, that's what we're supposed to do from birth till death. And that's how, you know, you leave a legacy behind and, and an impression upon the children, which are our future without the Whitney involved. Now, now have you come across the aspect and maybe you can appreciate what I'm about to say or not, uh, the policy makers and uh. doctrines of men as it was to help keep things that way as being a part of it. Have you noticed much? Because I know, you know, as you can see by my webpage, sir, you know, and I appreciate you being on because I, I run into a lot of issues with some scientists, real scientists, and I'm just someone asking dumb questions, you know, wanting to spread the word on things, who sees many fascinating things, and I will claim outright archaeological interesting features as well as interesting geological features, let's say on Mars, for instance. Now, there seems to be a policy in play for certain things like that. Have you encountered those type of subjects and policies and or how have you worked around them to still encourage the imagination like you just described and you know you're the best person on your ad so far that i think makes you feel the happiest and understanding the common sense of it of asking questions go ahead sir yeah um it's very straightforward. The, the problem is, if you're in a very conservative organisation, universities are very conservative, mm -hmm. and what they need to do is they have to stick generously. And this is something interesting. If you look at Carl Sagan's history, Carl Sagan ran into the loads of problems exactly like this yes. in the 1950s and 60s, uh, especially over comets. Comet, let's, let's use him as an example of comets because it's a good example there, where he said he felt, uh, he talked about what comets might, might be, and... That was quite interesting. So he, he was in contact with Fred Whipple. Great. Fred Whipple, the expert on comets, the dirty snowball theory. Nobody else was happy with the dirty snowball theory. Everybody thought there were parts of little globby bits and they weren't worth interesting. But Fred Whipple was an expert and he became an expert on Venus. And the thing he said about Venus was because it got clouds around it, therefore there were probably water vapors, probably an ocean on there. Carl Sagan Went, did, did the science and said, wait a minute. He says, we've got some data coming back here, which, which we're getting microwave radiation from, from Venus, which suggests to me, therefore, that the surface of the planet must be extremely hot. And therefore, it must have a, this atmosphere is dense carbon dioxide. And the pressure must be so high and so hot down there, there can't be water down there. And the only way it can lose its heat is through microwave radiation. Fred Whipple, who was very keen on the idea of it having a, a, a carbonated ocean, said, no, 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 no. What we're seeing is reflections of microwave radiation mm -hmm. from the sun through an air in the atmosphere. And Sagan, in his naivety, said, oh, is that right? What sort of layer is this? And Whipple then said, oh, well, actually, we, we, we don't know it exists, but I'm supposing that because I think that there's an ocean on there. Now, the whole scientific community sided with Whipple because it was Fred Whipple. Right. Fred Whipple has said, 
It turns out Sagan was right. And he was right because of science. He'd actually done the thing. And therefore, you have this situation happening here, and we have the same thing in, in the UK. It's generally a general global thing. that the institutions of scientists are very, 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 if you like, insular and really need to keep to this strict set of codes that they like to have. And you can't be too imaginative Right. Because if you are too imaginative, then you're starting to slip away into strange realms, which Carl Sagan was very happy to do. And he then backed it up by science, which freaked everybody else out. <laughs> and I read this a lot. But the beauty of me, which is why I'm popular on, on, on radio stations in, in the UK, is mm -hmm. because I'm not associated with a particular university or a specific organisation. And if you like a bit of a free spirit, I'm quite happy to talk about the subjects that the scientists won't particularly talk about because it might upset their masters at the university and therefore they might say you can't do that anymore otherwise we will pull your funding we will pull this right and there's and that unfortunately stops because i agree you can't let it go too far because if it goes too far you could end up you know could end up so well there's goblins oh that's why you need more data you need more data yeah. to really make those i mean one could speculate but to go too far yes. hey like that guy you mentioned Stating it's a fact and it can't be, you know, truth be damned until the data comes in. Not only do, yeah. they, do they look like having egg on their face, <laughs> but it, it helps suppress minds in a way, sir. You probably could understand what I'm saying there. Now, yeah. what fascinated me also about Carl Sagan years ago, before I even gave a crap about Mars and anything else now to steering me to help make our fade in for the future of the Martian revelation, is something that he said about being asked about, you know, how to look for uh, intelligent uh, civilizations. Uh, some would joke maybe here on Earth even, but, uh, you know, out there, what would they look for? The most common answers, of course, cities, roads, you know, what people would attribute to. And it basically was like, well, yes, but more down to the common mathematical point that he believes would be just as universal as life would be, intelligence would make geometry, so you would look for their geometry. And with mm. that, that's like totally shifted the other side of the brain to which we were being steered in school. And the dilemmas I used to get into with teachers about that, uh, you know, again, to me, the, the, there were stupid questions then. But some of those questions I still have not had answered and I'm still fascinated with. And I don't, don't think they were stupid either. But. You know, to the general public, you know, people, for what we hear now, a lot of them have the attention span of a goldfish. And that's pretty <laughs> That's pretty bad because look what we have the ability and the capability to do now, sir. So, okay, so as we're spreading, Sagan was a big point of that to later future to now what was ushering the age of it. All right, the Mars race is on, for instance, Mars. And to what... Life or not there, Dr. Gill Levin and his findings aside, but uh, I'd like to know what you think about that, sir, in a moment. But on where it's leading us, instead of having those solid answers, even he believes we've all been being reamed. We're being lied to, and it's not that he wants to say that, but because of the fact it's doctrines of men and policy and politics rather than the straight-on science is what these probes now that they're being touted by Europe, Rosalind Franklin, uh, us, the commie Chinese, even in some regards, the race is on. But the answer to questions, not one of them. 
has the yeah. ability to detect and discover life, but yet they're looking to look for the possible yeah. signs of possible life. How can you test for possible signs of possible past life if you can't even detect for life? But go ahead, sir. Yeah, I mean, what you're looking at is the chemistry which would, would, would be would be residual from the possibility that life did exist there. Certain, certain minerals, certain materials that could be left behind from biological processes. It is a real problem because what do you test for when you test for something that's alive remotely? It's not so bad when you physically can go there. And the best thing to do, of course, is send physically geologists and biologists there to the place because it's a much better thing to do. But yeah, if you have to do it remotely, it's actually quite difficult to decide how do you detect for something that's alive? For past life, you're looking for the, the conditions that existed there for life itself. If you take, for instance, if we look at it on Earth, for instance, we, we have biological processes have taken place. The decay of those biological processes have made mm -hmm. chemical changes in soil. It's made uh, residual material, which you can actually examine and realize that's for life. And we've just had this thing with phosphine in, in the Venus's atmosphere, which I actually find quite a bizarre concept because mm -hmm. phosphine is probably one of the last things you'd actually think of looking for mm. if you're looking for, for life in, in, a, in another world. But there's an example for you. And they're asking, to be fair, I'm surprised that people have used the comment with phosphine because there is stepping out of the box really and saying, wait a minute, we found phosphine. How do you find phosphine naturally? Well, you rarely find it naturally. And the only reason we usually find it naturally on Earth is from the decay of biological processes. And so when you go to Mars... Meaning life. Like that, yeah, you are looking for the, the if you like, the the chemical signatures where life used to be. Because actually looking for life knife as it moves now is actually quite a difficult thing. And it is quite possible that the Viking landers had actually detected it after all, and actually that's sort of fallen by the wayside now because they couldn't physically find, for instance, the, the organism itself, the organic material. But it looks like the experiment on the Viking landers now was too hot because they had to heat it up and physically destroyed the organic material that well, right. was there. Because so that's a real problem. The problem is the experiment itself. And that is always going to be a big issue when we go to these plants to actually look for life. And also the chemical processes of our life is great. It's all we've got to measure is the chemical processes of life that exist here on the Earth. We're not sure how different that's going to be, say, in the Venusian atmosphere, which if, if phosphine is correct there for that, then there is a very difficult chemical process taking place or the chemical processes on Mars. So we don't know how that life would actually exist in itself because it would be alien to us. So it's difficult for us to actually match the chemistry. We can only work on the chemistry we know. And that's what actually causes us a minor problem when you start investigating, which is a good argument to send people there because they can't beat the old brain and somebody who actually knows what they're doing. And on the there. spot. Right. Yeah, running, rummaging around themselves because you have to determine what you're trying to look for. It's very difficult because you almost have to list what you want to find before you go looking for it. And that is really no good for what we're doing on a place like Mars. We can only work in these very limits. And the equipment we'd like to send to Mars is available, but it's far too big and cumbersome. And this is why I think a lot of people get very excited with people like Elon Musk, where they've got these big pieces of kit, which it looks like they'll be able to fly. And the big effing rockets. Yeah, the big effing rockets. Yeah. You know, that at 100 people at a time, not a revamped right. Apollo Artemis of three or four or five. Hey, you know, that should have been done decades ago. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm going for the guy with the biggest nuts on the streets, sir, pardon <laughs> the French. And that's Elon Musk. A hundred men. 
of our, any yeah. given brain lengths and job capabilities, as well as 150 tons of cargo. And he yeah. wants to make a thousand of them. Can you imagine the expeditions that you could do? This would be this would be very much like. I mean, the whole thing about space exploration in the solar system is very much like the early days of, of exploring uh, North America, where you had teams of people going right across exploring. That's exactly the stage we're at now, and we need we need that kind of capability. I mean, it would be. I mean, we're going back to the 1950s, where you had these beautiful spacecraft which used to land, and whole teams of scientists turned up. If you remember on the moon in those days, like Destination Moon, teams of scientists ended up there with tons of equipment, which is really the only way you can actually do this kind of exploration, I think, properly. Um, the, the benefit, of course, from the technological development for us down here would be quite wonderful. Yeah. But you've got, but you've got to prepare. Having said that, from a scientific point of view, you've got to prepare the ground. And one of the big fears, I think, certainly if we're starting to explore Mars, is if there is organisms there, microorganisms in particular. And those microorganisms do exist. We've got two real major problems. One, if we bring them back to the Earth, we've got problems now with COVID-19. What the heck are we going to do if we get an organism from another planet which gets loose in an oxygen-rich atmosphere? We don't know how that's going to interact. We've got to be really careful there. The second thing is, if we go to Mars and we interact with an organism that's there, and because of our presence, we wipe that organism out, then we would be guilty of extraterrestrial life form and that would be terrible then we would be guilty of killing an extraterrestrial even if it's an amoeba sir I mean yeah, people people yeah. didn't really care wiping out the bigger organisms of American Indians <laughs> I mean it just yeah. seems inevitable yeah. on the, on the scale of, again Brookings civilizations crumbling under more advanced civilizations or yeah. higher technological I mean, yeah. those are just human traits. I mean, we're all sinners in that when it comes down to that. How, how can we explain that? We just look for a savior. But until then, I think uh, if, if it's amoebas or something, but if we have to expand and explore, and, uh, well, I would be concerned, yes, if someone's home. Of uh, yeah. uh, Whether the archaeological features are not withstanding, uh, if it, you know, the theme is at least in many of the research field of this work, is that if anything, it's a dead civilization. All right, fine. Uh, what harm would it cause if we have to go out there and explore, sir? It's inevitable, something, something. But if life's universal, we may have also have the chance that we may be able to figure out to counter the problems. But without humans being the guinea pigs, having the nuts mm. to take those steps and knowing that it's a risk for the rest of yeah. us and to expand our knowledge, sir. Uh, I find that fascinating. But if someone was home, I would I would leer back a little and obviously do the next best thing, try to communicate, right, if they're communicatable. Yeah. I mean, it's quite important because, I mean, the discovery of any form of life on another planet, amoeba, single cell, whatever that is a staggering thing to actually right. find. Because it's already hit her, too, right? The the meteors. Oh. Have you ever seen, you're a theatrical man, sir, The Outer Limits, not the old oh. series. There's a, the newer series, Outer Limits, The Sand Kings. Are you familiar with that, sir? I am, yes. Oh, my goodness. And I say that to my audience all the time. Thank you that I'm not crazy there. Uh, what you were just saying, 
I steer people to say, watch it. Let the theatrics really draw you in and understand the complexities because they're worried so much about us going there. But, sir, you got to find this as ironic as I do. But they want to bring the crap right back to Earth. I was like, why not cislunar orbit? We should have a position there or on the moon, both, and low Earth orbit as a second or third boundary wall before deeming it safe to come back to Earth. Because at least between those two or three prospects of walls, we can introduce things here on Earth with it to test as well before we allow it to come back? Or am I just, I'm crazy, sir, by the way. Uh, some people will tell you that. But I think that's a good question. It's good. I mean, the Lunar Receiving Lab, when it was originally set up, they actually took that, that as seriously as you're looking at it, and they were very concerned. And as many people remember, when the astronauts came back on Apollo 11, they were immediately sealed off into... Um, for isolation while they tested them to make sure there was no viral organisms in, in their system. And it's interesting that uh, I think it was Buzz Aldrin who commented that he said it was just as well because for weeks afterwards, he was still getting fine grey lunar dust coming out of the pores of his skin. Wow. So it, it was just as well. There was nothing in there. And of course, some of the astronauts had breathed in some of this material. And of course, it caused in one or two of them, it actually caused chest problems. Uh, because really? uh, dust, dust on Earth is, is rounded because of, of the erosion. There's no erosion like that on the moon. So it's actually, um, if you like, more spiky. So when it goes in, it has a tendency to irritate the lungs. Something that's going to have to be looked at when they go on Artemis, when they go to the moon. We're going to have to look at, at ways of actually protecting astronauts from lunar dust because actually it, it can be quite nasty onto the lungs. So you've got to be careful with that. But there was an example there, and they were very serious about that. And again, collecting any material, but we have to look at the, the reality. The Earth receives thousands of tons of material from space every year, True. either in, in or solid meteorites, got some hair, solid meteorite forms hmm. or mostly in dust fine dust actually drifts in through the atmosphere and lands on the earth all the time so for all we know due to spermia the, the, the transmission of material through space which could be organisms um, we could already be receiving material on the earth which was Chandra Rikrama Singh and Fred Hall talked about at Cardiff University in England in, sorry in Wales I won't write me for that one in hmm. Wales um, talked about the possibility that we we could be receiving types of organisms on a regular basis on this planet anyway which is interacting i mean if we look at viruses themselves we're a bizarre organism in in their own right we don't really fully understand how our or how viruses fit into the whole evolutionary thing they you know so they're very interesting in their own right for all we know we could have organisms which do invade us from outer space right. and there is no way for us to tell at this moment in time so it is a major problem that we have to think about and HTLs in the world of worlds talked about the the organisms killing the martians when they landed here right. but it could very much happen the other way around so it, it's a very important point that is true that is true and something to look out for especially uh as those abodes that uh, you know we see on mars uh, many of us in my research, whether you see or agree or not, sir, uh, that would be something to consider upon entering those things. Like even here, entering the pyramids on Earth, wasn't there mm -hmm. some uh, dust that kind of took mm -hmm. out some of them scientists? So I think that's a direct correlation and connection to what you just said that everyone should pay attention to. So I think that's mm -hmm. very valid. But for them to just to bring it back to the Earth, I mean... 
What do you think about that? And what do your colleagues or people think about that? I, I'm sure even amongst these tenured people and people telling you no or whatnot, you, you obviously have an air of respect amongst them all. Yeah, there, there is there is a level of concern over it. Of course, United, uh, NASA have already experimented with this by bringing samples back from space. And, of course, mm -hmm. one of the famous missions, of course, they were supposed to catch it in air in, in the air, which was been done numerous times before. And this one time they missed in the spacecraft. Of course, the capsule crashed into the ground and broke open. Right. Um, that's the danger. You don't want that to happen. It's great if it's going to come back down to the Earth and it's going to be nicely sealed and there isn't going to be a problem. But there is there is a high risk of that, and and they need they need to make sure that the technology in that is is safe. We have a stronger gravity than Mars and the Moon, and I'm I mean I know the the, the mechanical dif difficulties of getting something from Mars back to Earth orbit is much easier, uh, more efficient to actually chuck it down through the atmosphere. It's, it's very technically difficult then to get the thing a robotic probe then to suddenly go into Earth orbit and to do a rendezvous. Especially with but, Elon Musk's uh, big effing rockets uh, uh, being put to use. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it might be a way, I mean, I think certainly earlier in the, in the 19, late 1970s and 80s, they're always talking about docking these things with an international space. One of the things the International Space Station was primed for was astronauts would be primed there before they went to Mars, and then they would come back and they would dock with Mars with their samples in orbit about the Earth, so they could actually work on it there. Um, and that seems to have been okay. In one or two movies which have come out, there's a film called Life, which, which was good, where they had the organism kept in orbit, which was... I and think I think there is, it is a serious concern. I, I really think... And I spoke to a lot, a lot of people here as well, and they all agree there is a concern about it, but you mitigate the risks. It's all this risk assessment and mitigation and all that. Once you get the... And then the bean counters come in and say, "Ah, oh, yes, but if you're going to do that, it's going to cost another half a million dollars. And we don't really want to spend all that money. What we need to do is really huh. we could save all this money and bring it straight through. Well, that's fine as long as it, it stays intact. And I think and I have no doubt. I mean, I've got great respect for, for, engine, for engineers at NASA. Well, yeah. If you're going to bring something straight back, you're going to have to make sure the testing of getting the vehicle through our atmosphere is bang on because even though there's a minimal chance right there is still a loose chance and we're seeing it with covid-19 how the world has not been able to cope very well and doesn't you know we're still waiting for all sorts of things and nobody knows what to make a decision in some cases but to have an organism that is completely alien to us would be very very dangerous and i and i i i'm very confident that certainly people at nasa are taking it very seriously and this is why there's been a delay i think in in material coming back directly to the earth from Mars. It's already been done from the moon, of course. The Russians did it from the moon themselves. Well, from anywhere the... out there. From anywhere. So I, I guess what I'm getting, sir, um, is that maybe you'd be more comfortable, let's say, with a, pla a, space, a space platform base in cislunar orbit or even on the moon to really do these tests to make sure a security fence. Yes. I mean, I think this is where I think the Artemis program is, is a much better plan because it's a plan with uh, an orbiter around the, around the moon and a base on the moon itself. And from there, you can start to carry out 
research which could be a little bit risky to do actually carry out on the earth itself and i think it's much better um and it should be done on an international basis i think as well just to make life a bit easier otherwise we end up with everybody doing the same work twice or three times which has been happening over recent oh. years which doesn't doesn't progress anything very far at that's all that's why we got to win the space race here in the usa and uh we build it on our infrastructure of what it should be to enable them help the rest of the world peacefully come up uh as you know the space race is on uh the commie chinese and the russians it's already been outed that they're already using directed energy weapons and everything else in space therefore already validating that itself of all the people that joke about the space force even though it's also to protect us from uh from threats coming from deep space according to the presidents make that as you will you're an imaginative guy i think you're gonna appreciate uh, the irony of it but regardless we have to change we have to adapt and we have to face whatever it is as far-fetched as it is because out there anything's possible it is. And one of the things that people probably need to know, if humans are going into space, I mean, there's this great dream. I mean, you, you read the dream, and I used to have some fun with space enthusiasts uh -huh. about this. Um, <laughs> and pointing out to them, look, the reality is, yes, you're all very excited. You all want to go and explore. The reality is, this is humanity here. When humans go into space, they will bring all the usual baggage that humans carry with them. Well, true. Warfare, competition. Money. I mean, they're going, to, they're going to fight over mineral rights on the moon, on the asteroids. We know that's going yeah, to Yeah, Russia's happen. already <laughs> claiming uh, uh, Venus is theirs, even though the moon and everything else <laughs> is fair game, though, right? <laughs> right. I mean, we have the, the 19, you know, there's the space treaty of, of 1967, where you're not supposed to be able to claim anything in space. <laughs> the reality is, you really think that the Chinese land on part of the moon and they, they locate... Um, rare earth metals there, they're going to say, oh, that's fine, everybody can help themselves. I don't think so. They're going to claim it, of course they are. Um, and they're going to use it for their own industries. And that's what's going to happen. There was a, there was a film made in, in Britain in about 69 called Moon Zero Two. Very interesting film. Anyone get it on DVD, it's worth watching because it's quite an amusing film because that talks about mining prospectors on the moon. And you're thinking, well, actually, we've reached that stage now where in the next few years, we're going to get private company prospectors going there. And they're going to be protected by a police force so who polices that well each respective country will police it so it's it's going to be the wild west in space it really is going to get that way it is exciting though sir and as bleak as some of that is as humanity goes because then uh, therefore bloodshed usually follows but it doesn't have to but if it does you know i, I hope it don't but i just hope uh it's enough to where Again, our presence out there, industrialization of space, colonization, it's not just about sending a few astronauts on a revamped Apollo anymore. This is a much bigger plan, much bigger vision where we're going to stay. We got to have bastions, we got to have toeholds, beachheads, uh, as well as because for the military train to protect us from the threats here on Earth, as well as from whatever those threats may be, intelligence or otherwise. Uh, natural space threats coming from these space. Yeah. We, we we have to be the train for the military train. And that's that means a lot of jobs. That means Joe Schmo growing up today, uh, you know, in these in the schools that they're being taught, kindergarten onwards, uh, mm. have to also be out there to applicate their lives 
to adapting the space to further that train along. And I think it's fascinating when, like you, sir, looking at it as if you could try to imagine yourself there and, you know, and feel that impression. It's like what you just said, the Wild West. Uh, a lot of people today cannot grasp that. And the work that you do, I think it inspires that from what I've seen so far, and it's incredible. You're a unique spirit, sir. Yeah, thank you. I mean, it's, it's good. So, so some I do, I'm actually, strangely, I mean, just because of COVID-19, I actually haven't had any paid work now since March 16th because everywhere shut down. There's nowhere to do any presentations wow. anymore. But when I used to go to schools uh, or, or talk to children, I used to look at children in the last few years and said, you know something, in 15, 20 years' time, being an astronaut is now a career option for you. And you can actually say that with full confidence now. It is a, fancy that, a career option to yeah. become an astronaut mm -hmm. or an engineer in space. Absolutely fantastic. I mean, how wonderful is that? We used to have a set of books when I was, uh, when I was at primary school called Ladybird Books. And there used to be a picture in, one, in the book on space. And it used to have two children looking through the window of a, of a, of a space plane looking at the moon. And I always thought when I get older that's going to happen and of course it never did right. but now look at children you're thinking that is going to happen for them isn't it exciting to think where it could where that could lead and of course you find that when you've got all these people coming together and people are traveling into space same with international travel generally people people mix with other cultures and other people and they start to talk to each other and you suddenly realize well actually i mean i i did a big tour of, of libya in 2006 uh, for an for an eclipse and started to talk to Libyan people, and it was remarkable how coming how we were all surprisingly enough similar in our outlooks of the excitement of going into space, and we all felt it. And I thought that was quite a good thing because you suddenly felt the sense of humanity for once. Because if we go into space, and then anyway, if we do meet any extraterrestrials, extraterrestrials will look at me, or they'll look at you, or they'll look at people in another country, and they won't say, "Oh, they're Americans, they're British." They're Libyan. They won't say that. No, that's that little blue planet over there. These nuts, they love to kill each other. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they won't understand. They probably won't understand that, which is quite interesting. Hmm. Unless they're already observing us, of course. And to be quite honest, if you're an extraterrestrial looking at the Earth, the last thing you'd want to do is come in direct contact with us. You'd want to stand back a bit and watch what goes on because you know full well that we're probably not ready for that contact. Well, bring, bringing that up, sir, bringing that up, sir, I mean, being who we are, what we're at now, what we know now or potentially know now, what obviously has been all throughout the world to acclimate us to certain things, uh, without being married to anything, what is your opinion on that possibility? We may, we may already be being observed. I won't mention contacts or any of the other aspects okay. that could implicate, but I think that's a good question too, because especially where we're at and how we're, like you, sir, adapting. Hey, look, things are changing all the time. Is it far-fetched? No, it isn't far-fetched. I, I think the, the difficulty we have with it, I think there are in uh, extraterrestrial intelligences out there. I think there's no problem with that. Uh, the difficulty is always going to be the distances involved in communication with them. And the Planet Society, who I worked with for, 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 as I said, for over 30 years, were very big on using radio telescopes and then doing optical setting. To, to try and identify signals. And we still haven't been able to do it after all this time, which which leads us to many quandaries about this, of whether or not 
maybe the extraterrestrials don't communicate on anything like what we normally, what we would consider our communications. It's so primitive. And it's sometimes there's a habit of the human race thinking itself extremely clever when in fact we've only been here for a relatively short period of time right. and our communicative capability is only just over 100 years. So to be honest, we're very, very young on the block. So that could be the major problem. But I think extraterrestrials, if they are observing us, and I think there's no reason to suppose they we haven't been observed, perhaps right. either in the distant past, or perhaps we are being monitored, perhaps they've picked our signals up and are just curiosity listening. We're thinking this is a, a planet with intelligences which are developing. I think they might look upon that. Right. And perhaps in a million years' time, they'll be developed enough then to perhaps be worth communicating with. I, I can't really see that being impossibility at all. Right. But the... But having said that, our group of stars and planets which formed at the same time where we are and planets which formed far away from us could be so far advanced that we've actually missed the development of each other and we've missed each other. The dinosaurs lived on the Earth for over 100 million years, very, very successful types of animals, didn't develop radio communication as far as we know. So any extraterrestrials who visited the Earth or listened to the Earth at that point would have found nothing and then moved on. We've come along. It's too late. They've been and gone, and that's. I think that's a quite a strong possibility that they may have actually been and gone, and and when the Earth wasn't actually developed enough because we're do you here think now. Maybe, do you think maybe, sir, that that could account for the structures that we cannot duplicate today? That that obviously pre-atomite, it seems. Uh, of that possibility, and I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the theme: ancient aliens, ancient aliens for everything. <laughs> but in a sense, that's a could be a logical question, but like turn, trying to turn it into religion as if that's the case. I mean, I think more data is needed, but what do you think of the possibility of these structures and then therefore what we see on Mars and potentially what may be found on Venus? Would that surprise us or inspire us? Or at least people who think like we do, it seems. Well, we need certainly a lot more data because I have yes. yet to see physical evidence to say that any of these should should be related to any extraterrestrials. But I think mm -hmm. if we did find something, I think that would be, I think hopefully it would be inspiring. I think there is a, the Earth is a, the human species is a strange species because there are um, Isaac Newton. Interestingly, Isaac Newton's last book is quite an important one, and it wasn't published till after his death. And the reason why he didn't, it wasn't published till after his as death, as well as their fame usually goes after they all die, and then well, that's when they get famous. They, his his book he was trying to look at the origin of Christianity uh -huh. and the thing that surprised him was he found that all the religions as he was studying all seemed to have a commonality and that of course was not acceptable in the 17th century England that would never right. you don't want to publish that and it wasn't published until uh -huh. after his death and it's an interesting read and it's if like a precursor to um, the Golden Bough very interesting series of uh, volumes of books looking at the history of, of various types of, of uh, mythology and um, and customs we have in the world itself. And they all do seem to go into a particular direction. And I wouldn't have been surprised that some of the ideas that spurred on some religions may have been caused by something pe people have physically seen and may be a visitor. I mean, I, I, you have to look at it and go, well, there's a possibility. I think sometimes they take the steps and the, the theoretical ideas far too far then and make leaps which aren't there. But we have an absolute, as a species, an obsessive fascination with the sky from yeah. very early times. Is it because we've got a particularly good clear skies at certain times? 
Perhaps it was purely due to comets. Perhaps it was due to meteor showers. But we seem to have an inordinate obsession through every culture of what's in the sky itself. That, in my book, and I flight. think is quite fascinating. Yes, I find is. that really interesting. And of course, some people attribute it to ancient aliens, but the evidence is just not... I have to be honest, the evidence is just not there. You can speculate. I don't think the speculation's wrong. I think it's great. So all, the, all, of these, uh, all of these ancient structures on Earth, you don't think any of them might be possibly connected to, like you said before, came with the dinosaurs and just, or some other point before us, or even during us, uh, we just forgot because... Gosh, how we can't duplicate it today, and and uh, and with what? How did they shape them, fit them? Obviously, they had a very highly intelligent way of uh, uh, engineering skills that we can't duplicate, either than cut through the hardest stones or the polymers and stuff like that. Uh, or you just think that's just past human uh, or other Earth species? hominid type of intelligence that just came and gone and we're just rediscovering trying to figure out i think most of it's rediscovered we haven't there is an analogy to this in britain strangely enough uh -huh. um there are the remains of a of a computer uh, in britain which was which was being developed um and this was a mechanical computer and no one was too sure about this mechanical computer um, built in the 19th, partially built in the 19th century. And the interesting thing was they weren't sure about it and, and they weren't sure whether it was or it wasn't because they couldn't understand how in the 19th century they could have built a mechanical operating computer. I mean, it's a, a, essentially a giant adding machine, if you like, calculating right. machine. But nonetheless, it, it's, it's there. And they really felt they couldn't be done. Hmm. And they weren't able to do it and actually until... I think it's about 15 years ago, they were able to rebuild it and proved it worked. Now, that's only a 100-year gap, and we couldn't work out how they'd done something in the 19th century. So when you're looking at some people have solved a problem, a building problem or something, perhaps a 1,000 years ago, it doesn't surprise me at all that the technique could simply have been lost. And that's quite a common thing that actually does happen, strangely enough. You also can find uh, there's a when I was working for a weighing company, they were developing the new concept for what the kilo should be. And it was based on a sphere of material with a certain number of atoms in it. This was the new calculation. Mm -hmm. The man who made it didn't use a machine. He physically did it by eye, making a perfect sphere. You'd have said that was impossible to do, but he could do it. So I think sometimes we underestimate the skills of humans because sometimes human skills are absolutely staggering. And I think sometimes we have a bad habit of underestimating what we can actually achieve. That's funny you bring up spheres because, you know, they found many perfectly shaped spheres of ancient that's been, mm -hmm. uh, you know, e either eroded back mm -hmm. of the materials from whence it was rolled there, shot there, whatever there. Mm -hmm that was constructed and of massive weight and people are trying to figure out well how was it done and well yeah it's there's a saying civilizations rise civilizations fall but the earth abideth forever <laughs> absolutely right and, te and technologies come and go and we have to rediscover things it's it's very sad i think i mean carl sagan going back to carl sagan here because he introduced me to something interesting which was the alexandria library the library that got destroyed right that library had so much data in it 
But had we actually got hold of all that data, we probably now would be traveling to the stars because it would have advanced our physical knowledge of the universe so much more. But of course, sadly, it was destroyed. And you've got the works of, uh, of Hero there, the man who made steam engines in, ancient, in, in the ancient times, which was quite staggering. But nobody needed the steam engine then for any particular reason. It was expensive and difficult to make. Um, and you've got the Antikythera machine, a remarkable machine which could yeah. actually calculate the into the planet. There's nothing magical about any of these. You just had a very, very clever person doing it. But of course, because nobody particularly wanted it en masse, they were destroyed, they got they corroded away, and of course all forgotten about when empires fall, everything gets destroyed and wiped off. We've just seen that in recent times with, with um, Daesh. Yeah. Look at the destruction they've done, which is absolutely staggering. And you've probably wiped out not only history there, but if they've been given the capability of coming even further into Europe, just imagine the destruction they could have done. They, for instance, could have ruled Europe perhaps for 200 years. Well, that was their goal. You know that. And to wipe out the history and technologies and knowledges, God forbid. That's why I said, you know, at least for people like myself and others uh, who believe what we're seeing on Mars is very interesting, uh, intelligent-wise, that they would love to get up there to blow it up. That's why a few years back, you may remember this and might get a kick out of it, that a couple Yemenis claimed and tried to sue NASA to prevent us from going back there. <laughs> they couldn't reach it to blow it up! I know. I mean, it, it's it's great. It's great to speculate. You see, the point of speculation is very important to go there to find out. I mean, Carl mm -hmm. Sagan said there was the fame. You all know the famous face of Mars, of course, because big, big discussion in Cydonia. Um, and when that was actually done, um, the, 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 the scientific community wouldn't talk about it. Right. Well, there's some understanding reasons why, though, especially at that time, you know, compared to now looking at it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I mean, Carl Sagan said the right thing. He says, we've got to look at this reality. It's one of two things. One, it's a very interesting shaped mound which, by the way, we look at it, we, we think it's a face. Or two, it's actually a face. Right. The only way to do it, go and have a look. That's, that's right. Boots there. And that's why my, Vice President Mike Pence stated that we're going to put American boots on the face of Mars. Everyone's <laughs> clapping. You remember? Everyone's clapping. I'm like, what the hell are they clapping at? I would have just been, sir, please reaffirm what I just heard you say. <laughs> you know, because they're not bringing flags and flowers. He touted that. For, about pushing the Space Force. They're bringing M60s. You know, he didn't say international collaboration with any commie Chinese or anyone. So uh, I got it. And But, hey, we'll see where history goes, right, sir? Either way, it would be exciting to watch unfold and inspiring still. I mean, that's the whole yeah. thing of it all, you know. But uh, with that, sir, do you mind if we go to a break for about six minutes? Uh, and and then we'll come back. Uh, please mute your mic, sir, and then uh, we'll be back. But listeners to this show can appreciate we got a motto here. Pack them and smoke because you're definitely going to need them when we come back with our special guest, Andrew Lowne. Fascinating, the subjects. This guy, you got to love him. I, I, he's got to be a return guest on again someday. Hopefully he agrees. All right, so stay tuned, everyone. <laughs> I'll be back. Don't run. We are your friends. <laughs> You are 
listener of the Martian Revelation, then you are well aware that the entire planet Earth is currently involved in an all-out worldwide space race. Every country across the globe, including England, Germany, India, Russia, and China, are involved in a mad Martian rush to be the first country to plant their flag on Mars. Get an idea of what these brave astronauts will be finding on the planet Mars before President Trump plants the first American boots on the face of Mars. You might want to familiarize yourself with George Haas and get to know his work and read his books. Haas has been studying NASA and European Space Agency imagery of Mars for over 25 years and has co-authored two books with geomorphologist William Saunders called the Cydonia Codex and the Martian Codex. I encourage you all to support his research by visiting his website at www.thecydoniainstitute.com. And remember, as George Haas has always said, through NASA's own pictures, the truth will be revealed.
indeed. The old Pink Floyd there. Maroon. What an interesting concept, being maroon, where life is. Well, what type of life? Who knows, these worlds out there, they're teeming with life, it seems. Well, many have other opinions of that. Many are more seclusive of that. Many are more open-minded to it. And emboldened and passionated by it. I believe our guest is such a person. And we're with our special guest, Mr. Andrew Lound. And if anyone would like to, you know, call in on the timeline, we'll just uh, blow these cobwebs off. 202-684-6955. 202-684-6955. One more. 202. Because I know you all packed them and smoked them. 684-6955. And in doing so... Yeah, I'm sure you're visioning and your mind is racing. There are possibilities of things you really don't get to see and hear every day. You're, you're in your life and everything, going through life, the rigmarole, where most people don't even look up, let alone care about what's out there. But it's the most important for our human species. So that's why I say we got to break the paradigm, and we are. We're making our fate as we usher in the Martian revelation. And our guest, in my heart, I feel he's a part of that more than whether he knows it or not. But I'm crazy, but that's okay. Because, you know, you're hearing this here, you're sitting here envisioning this. Who else is really teaching you of this? You're not seeing this on mainstream news. What, maybe 20 seconds? It's like, who gives a crap movement? You move on, back to life. But when you sit here and think about it and look at it and see all the vast amounts of data and contemplate what all these smart people are working on, just think about what you people could be working on just by looking around and asking questions because that will keep those that uh, have the brains and degrees, that will keep them on their toes because we can shape the policies of what needs to come. And we all need to, to support Elon Musk's big effing rocket program. NASA had their chance. They dropped the ball. They were poked in the chest by the presidents to say if they don't do things according to their plan and vision they have, they'll find someone else who can and will. And bringing that vision back alive as Americans that we have, we must be the leaders in space to build our infrastructure up there. We're not a dumbed-down nation class that they had tried to make us. And look... They have enemies of this planet are using our technology. They stolen it. They were bought it outright. We were taken away of our heritage of where we should be at now in space. I believe we should be at Werner Von Braun's, at least in the 50s Disney films. We should have accomplished that already, let alone we're worrying about sending four astronauts up on a revamped Apollo or Artemis, which doesn't seem to have very much vision behind it of where we should have been what, 30 years ago, sir? <laughs> but again, the timeline, 202-684-6955. And again, I'm not knocking those who want to be into this and pursue, because remember, we could be wherever we could really want to be if the, we have the right, I'll say, balls and the push behind them to make those visions and visionaries come true and multiply them a thousandfold, a la, alas, Elon Musk, big effing rockets. He wants to create a thousand of them. What a vision. What could we could do? Three of them going up a day back and forth. So, again, I'll stop blabbering and get back to our guest. As, um, it's fascinating. Again, you know, you mentioned Venus. Okay. 
what is what is your prospect? Because there are people out there that claim that. And NASA said this, too, that there may be possible. You remember that? Sir, you would know more better than that of me. A couple months ago, they said that there may be, and it was, this was before the phosphine, possible hints at water existing on Venus. I would say, well, certainly under Venus, the surface. But uh, or did I hear that wrong? Are you familiar with what I'm trying to remember? Yeah, we're looking at it. This The, the issue with Venus is quite bizarre. Uh, the, surface yeah. the, the surface temperature is just under 500 degrees centigrade. The atmospheric pressure is 90 times that of sea level on the Earth. So the surface is always halfway to melting point. Um, and it doesn't, Earth's divided into tectonic plates. Those tectonic plates allow heat to actually escape from our planet. Venus isn't like that. It's almost got a complete skin around it. So heat is, is trapped inside, which causes a real problem for it. Plus, you've got the high pressure and the carbon dioxide. But as you move up through the atmosphere, you get a layer in the atmosphere, which is which is quite a temperate zone. And this layer, they've noticed, is quite a remarkable one. The Russian probes, which, which actually went there with some of their balloons, they made some incredible discoveries, which <laughs> the West decided to ignore because they said, well, they're not using the technology we use, so that's probably not accurate. But they're actually finding it was accurate after all that. And it's a possibility that they seem to find water, oxygen, and even the, the Russians had detected what we now know was phosphine there, even those years ago, back in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. So it does appear that there's a temperate zone in the atmosphere of Venus where you could possibly have the, 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 the life, if you like. You could possibly have life actually existing in the atmosphere itself in this temperate zone. It's a bit, strangely of Carl Sagan, we always keep going back to Carl Sagan which Carl Sagan completely bewilders me because every time Carl Sagan made a remarkable statement which seemed to be completely out there which everybody laughed at we keep finding he was probably right after all <laughs> which is which is a big plus for imagination but this temperate zone is quite a bizarre area and it's not something we have the equivalent to on Earth because it's atmospheric but there does seem to be a zone on Venus where you seem to have the conditions right, uh, which is very similar to that of, of the Earth. But you've got to remember, this is in the atmosphere, not down on the ground. You couldn't get water on the ground at all. You couldn't get water underneath because the temperatures are just too too violent. Yeah, indeed. Now, so it's an engineering aspect issue. Uh, that's the problem. But Russia seems to be claiming now, and I've heard that we've been making stronger metals and figuring out ways to get through some of these things. Uh, you think it's more plausible now that we should, you know, have the nuts to chance it? I mean, the only way, I mean, even over and over need be. I mean, these are planets so far away, but they're our closest neighbors. And to me, it makes the most sense that, you know... Well, we secured the inner solar system. Take that for however you want, scientifically as well as militarily. Yeah, and the inner solar system is interesting. Venus is a very interesting planet because we can learn a lot from Venus about things like global warming, greenhouse effect temperatures, because we physically see it there on, on Venus itself. So it's, a, it's an important planet to actually study for that. When the Russians first dropped the spacecraft down through the atmosphere, it actually disintegrated because of the pressure. So they virtually had to build the type of vehicle that actually dropped at the bottom of the Pacific. 
to actually drop down there. Now, we have much better technology now to do that. The European Space Agency have been working. In fact, we've got Professor Taylor at Oxford University in Britain, who's a real expert on Venus. And they were looking forward to actually dropping stuff through the atmosphere, but budgets went out the window. But there is a program with Russia and America working together at the moment on a project to actually go to to Venus. So they're hopefully going to start to see these experiments start again. But these also include objects which will actually remain flying high in the atmosphere of Venus. So you could study all the different zones of the atmosphere itself, apart from dropping down onto the surface. And I True. think it is worth dropping down onto the surface because it is an unusual environment to actually explore. Yes, and that would definitely be needed too. Now, if something was to go to the surface, I, I know, again, I'm crazy. But think about what I just came across my mind. If something was encased like with, let's say, a diamond to keep our precious instruments and stuff in, would that be able to withstand the pressures because those type of pressures helped create those diamonds to begin with here on Earth? No? So would that be a... I guess to uh, keep it simple, right? Uh, that would be a good shield? We've got we've got technology, suitable technology here with various titanium projects, and in fact, even glass spheres, which are very resistant to pressure, could actually be used. Very similar to the diving bells we sent down to look ironically <laughs> at the Titanic. We could actually use technology very similar to that, and that would be very successful to do. So the technology is really there at the moment. The the problem is, of course, getting the budgets to actually do it, because of course. We're back to those wonderful people in the Senate, in Congress, or in the British Parliament, or the European Parliament, even worse still, um, to actually agree to actually fund such exciting projects. Um, and the, this is one of the sad, I say sad things, because the, the decisions made about going to the planets, about exploration, and doing the things which could benefit humankind, are usually in the hand of, hands of the people who are less experienced, with the less knowledge of all, to make the decisions, but they have the decisions to make, and these are the politicians. You don't get many scientific politicians these days. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, though Trump, I, I do love his vision and his nuts coming out openly. Hey, if I give you all the money you wanted, <laughs> can you get us to can you get us to Mars? Why didn't they say yes? He was offering to give them everything they wanted. You know, yeah. I mean, that could have been envisioned technically. I would have used my thought out of the box since he did. That's a comment out of the box. I would have been like, all right, NASA, we're going to do a lot of these missions. Elon Musk, we're funding you up the yin-yang, uh, getting we the people into a, a public program. We're even to create millions of uh civilian jobs to help yeah. build these big effing rockets a thousandfold and everything else that's going to be needed to get the military train let alone the civilian train to follow it's something like that big caliber of a movement that seems so unprecedented that actually needs to take place to truly win the space race and shape our future would you agree yeah, you've got to be ballsy about these things, and, and it's the only way of getting things done. It's very impressive. I mean, when I do stuff here, uh, talk about space development here, I always talk about Musk with great with great excitement because I thought he's actually doing. Well, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Van Upon Braun's Disney programs because that's very important because that enthused, and you had the Collier's Magazine of the period that enthused a generation of people to say, "Why can't we just do this? Why not?" And Musk has got the nerve to actually say, well, here's the money, here's the technology, let's just go and do it, shall we, and see what happens. 
You've got to do anything in life. You've got to do that to get things done. Otherwise, you'll achieve nothing. You'll just sit there and just twiddle your thumbs. And I see Elon Musk with his vision. It in it, to me, it is just as matching, if not more, than the vision I got when I was a kid from watching one of on Braun in those Disney films. Remember that of those yeah. of what he was proposing. We should have had that decades ago. It was on that type of technology then. Think about what we could do now. Well, granted, they would have still had to overcome a lot of things that were many were just only recently talking about now. But where? But that's because, again, like you said, people with the money and this and that politics and whatever other reason, people want to keep us down on the farm. But now where's a chance for us to make our fate? We all must be a part of it, not just any yes. political agency or whatnot. Yeah. We all have to be inspired for, for that purpose for at least the greater uh the greater amount of humanity and i think that again would fall into brookings kind of on how we would achieve that because we would already know and we've already been going through what it predicted in a lot of senses of of how to achieve those goals uh but i believe we may have a caller on the timeline i can't believe it is there a caller caller do you have a name Evening, Gary. Yeah, it's Mike Montana. Oh, hey, Mike. How you doing? Uh, thank you for joining us, man. And uh, what do you think about our guest tonight, man? He's definitely got to be a return guest. Yeah, he's very knowledgeable. I've heard him before about 10, 12 years ago. I was impressed then, and he's a very knowledgeable fellow. And uh, I wanted to ask you, Mr. Lound, if it's if – it's, what is your opinion on Europa uh, Enceladus? I can never say that right. Enceladus. 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 Yeah. And uh, Titan. Yeah. Are those good stepping stones for humanity, or do you think we're just wasting our time heading in that direction? No, I don't. I think Europa offers, oddly enough, Europa offers more of a prospect of finding microorganisms than Mars does. It's a very unusual object. Surrounded by this rather interesting crust of ice with cracks in it. And, of course, you've got this dark material which is coming up from underneath the ocean there and filling into the cracks on the ice. And what I find quite remarkable about that is nobody in the great scientific community, you ask them, well, what is this dark material that we're seeing in the ice? They say, oh, we're not really sure about it. We haven't really got the instrumentation there to look at it, which, of course, is what's going to happen, hopefully, in a couple of years' time when we go to Europe to have a look. Because you see a similar coloration in ice in parts of the Earth. Now, because they're not linked to any university or anything, I can actually make a speculation here. We could actually already be looking at extraterrestrial life because from space we look down on certain ice in parts of the Earth and we see this colour contamination in the ice. It's because microorganisms have risen from underneath the ocean. And it would be quite astounding to think that we've actually been looking at Europa all this time and seeing microorganism contamination in the ice. It might not be, but it would be interesting if it was. And that's why Europa is quite an important place to go. And Saladus, we've got geyser activity on a world that shouldn't have it at all. It's too small. But where's this energy coming from? And, of course, that geyser activity is protecting this world from the radiation from Saturn itself. And that makes it a fantastic place to actually explore and the possibility of all microorganisms there as well. And as for Titan, Titan is one of the most incredible worlds. 
Titan of all the of all the moons is quite an interesting one because it does have this atmosphere. It is a nitrogen atmosphere like the Earth. Its gravity is a lot lower. It has a reasonably high pressure, but it is a place you could set up a base in theory, which would be quite interesting. I know there's a discussion at the moment going on for a robotic vehicle to actually go to Titan, and it should be an important place to actually visit. We need to understand how Titan is replenishing that atmosphere because it shouldn't have it. So I think all three worlds are important to visit. I think we've got to be careful, though, with Enceladus and Europa that we, we don't contaminate those worlds because they're likely to have possibly good possibility of microorganisms there, and we could learn a great deal. But I think Titan is going to be worth a visit at some point, and I think could be an interesting stepping stone uh, and a place to put a, a, a base, if you like, to explore the Saturnian system, then as a jumping point then to go further into into the solar system. Hmm. What kind of time frame do you think we're looking at to accomplish well, investigating those planets? I, th I, I would actually like to see it done as quickly as possible. I think the reality is, and the reality is, it's probably not going to be for another 50 or 60 years before we certainly see anybody stepping on the surface of Titan. Unacceptable! But if somebody like Leo uh, Musk gets these things working, and he's already talking about these things to fly beyond, then you could suddenly see a spurt. I think we'll see a... We, with a bit of luck and a fair wind and a good spurt, we could actually see people like Musk suddenly spurting, spur, spurting out into deep space. In theory, if his vehicles work, then within 20 years, we could actually see explorers going deep into the solar system. Whether it becomes practical to do it or not is another thing. Certainly robotic probes are going to go to Europa very soon, hopefully to Enceladus as well. And there's already talks about robotics dropping onto the surface of Titan. And that's all to happen within 30 years rather than beyond. But I would like to see the expansion of the human species going out there if we've got the technologies to do it. And I think if Musk gets his way and he does these rockets right, then I think it'll be hard to stop people just doing it, frankly. And I'd love that. Yeah, then we could I'd build outposts. We could build outposts around these worlds. We could go there and jettison down the robotic missions. You know, J uh, what was it? JPL and, and uh, others were always, you know, fighting for, you know, the robotic missions and all this stuff over human exploration because of funding, but they don't understand, or at least politically, that you need both bastions. Yes, we need to have them bastioned there. If we go to Europa, uh, set up shop around orbit, in uh, around Europa, Enceladus, Enceladus, Mars, everywhere else we go and send the robotic probes down, utilizing the mine, we're mining the asteroids and material. We could also use them as factories to help be, uh, create a lot more things. Again, more jobs. You're going to have to ferry more people. We have to expand in the universe. You just said it. Uh, but go ahead, Mike. Uh, you, have any, uh, you have more questions? Feel free to ask whatever you may. This is really interesting. I just had one more concern in China, uh, China's interest in the moon. I've heard before that helium-3 is about seven, eight feet thick, you know, layered over the moon. Do you think China's trying to exploit that for their future missions into uh, the outer reaches, I would say? And Maybe should not we? Space, but 
yeah, I, th I think I think helium three is something that people haven't talked about for a while. But I think helium three is a major issue because if you can get helium three, then you can have nuclear fusion reactors on the Earth, which are, of course are much cleaner than nuclear fission reactors and much better. But helium three is rare on the Earth, and and therefore you have to go to the moon. There's not been a, there's been some research done as to how much helium three should be on the moon. Uh, and unfortunately, we really need harder data. But I have absolutely no doubt in my mind that one of the reasons China is actually going to the moon is to is for economic reasons as much as for anything else. Things like rare earth mineral, rare, rare earth metals, particularly possibly some minerals, but certainly I think helium three is the major target. And I think the United States is fully aware of that as well, which has driven the government to support the Artemis program, frankly, because they know full well that the people who control helium three will control the possibly the future of nuclear power on the earth. Indeed, and what about all the what? gold in Dendar Hills? <laughs> <laughs> Well, that would be interesting, because if there's a lot of gold on the moon, then the price of gold will actually fall. Or anywhere. Or anywhere in the universe. Uh, asteroids. Anywhere. Uh, or other type of metals that not from of Earth that we could maybe utilize, create new tools. I mean, this opens up all new avenues of learning and application, just like here on Earth. We're like the proverbial cavemen, but technologically in space. Absolutely. Just the whole, I mean, the whole solar system is now becoming suddenly available. Just the moon initially, of course, probably some of the local asteroids, which, which the United States are, are looking at as well. And again, it just makes it quite available. I mean, here, this meteorite here is nice. Nickel iron, very solid, fantastic. Yeah, material. I hear you I jamming mean, it on your desk there. How heavy is that rock? Because I'm hearing that dung, dung, dung. That must have some weight. <laughs> yeah, the, the, this one here weighs, weighs about half a pound and it's only small. And that's that's it. But it's it's 99% nickel iron. We actually use use that meteoritic material on the Earth as, as practical. In space, it's it's tons of iron out there waiting for us to actually go and collect it. Apart from other materials which would be useful, titanium, al uh, uh, um, aluminium. There's tons of material which could be available out there if we actually begin to go and have a look. So it it is. The next gen. In fact, we had the industrial revolution here, starting off in the, in the Midlands in, in Britain, which spread out around the world. We've got a new industrial revolution in space, which is just waiting to take off. And by the time we've reached the end of this century, most I would think of the industrial processes that we use to support our planet will actually take place in space. Yes, and I think that's logical, and it's needed, and the quicker the better. We must make our fate and uh, the way to pass that this world has been running. But now we're going to have some real hope and change. And yeah. I look forward to that. Yeah, I, I think yeah. so. I'm always hopeful. I'm always hopeful, always enthusiastic about we move forward. We, 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 we can look back, but we must move forward. And that's the important thing. Yes. Um, hey, Mike, uh, you have anything else you would like to ask, uh, Mr. Lound? No, I... I I didn't want to be rude to hang up. I wanted to say thank you for taking my call, and um, thank you to Mr. Lowndes for being on the show. I hope you come back you. soon. Thank you. Thank yes, you. And thank you much. for listening, brother, and uh, thanks for calling. So, again, that, that was interesting. and brought up some good questions. Again, that helium-3 is, an, you know, a big issue. Um, yeah. Also, and because I heard that a shuttle load, at least of what we used to term as a shuttle, could power... This country for a hundred years is that true? 
Helium-3 is very good. It's very efficient for nuclear fusion reactors. Nuclear fusion is where we should have gone. It's interesting when scientists de develop nuclear fission power, and certainly British scientists who are very, very ahead of the curve at this point, actually pointed out to the government that we've got this small nuclear fission reactor. But now what we need to do is develop nuclear fusion because these could be dangerous because, you know, if they get too big, then we have problems with cooling and we have problems with waste. And the government said, oh, no, 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 we won't do that. This makes money. Build them big. And therefore, they shelved the fusion development when you should have continued with the fusion development, which would have been the way to go forward. And that's where you get the interference of politicians who don't really know what they're talking about in science, overriding what the scientists said. Winston Churchill once said, scientists should be on tap, not on top. Well, I don't <laughs> think so, to be quite honest. <laughs> yeah, a lot of them are on the bottom. So we all... Yeah. <laughs> Lately, this Chinese Kung Fu has been showing us all that. And uh, it definitely hasn't been, been run by science. And that's the problem. They're trying to return the definition of what science is, is to do as they say. You know, and, yeah. uh, you know, that's not a good trend either. But again, we have to remain uh, optimistic and uh, look to our future and make our fate where they're not in control and deciding factors of that. And with free spirits and minds like yours, sir, to help teach the the kids and and people in general uh therefore they can teach their kids uh that is the important piece of a puzzle uh that's gonna help make our fate and because it's gonna come down to the wire which you agreed to earlier is uh, really for this to be done right has to become a massive effort and eventually a worldwide effort but definitely yes. what a, the right national effort to help build the infrastructure. Um, yes. And I do believe, in my opinion, I'm not, maybe I'm, it's biased because I'm an American, but I say it needs to be the Space Force and we the people to lead that way. Yes, we've got, we've got to have a, a bottom-to-top system going on. I was involved in a, in a debate over new technology coming in after COVID-19, the green recovery, because I've been talking to, to a company in Britain called Adelaide and they're developing fuel cell technology. Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, fuel cells have, you know, developed by, by Britain at one point. It went to the Apollo program, which was developed even further then, because nobody in Britain wanted fuel cells. And this technology has been held back at the moment in the UK because they still want to, the, the old powers are still there with the money in their banks, still wanted to push older technology still going forward. And they're actually sitting on and trying to hold back new developments. And we can't allow that. We've got to... And it's got to be from the people up here to actually start banging the drum a bit and say, hey, come on, we need this. We're the people. And we the people is a very important term. It's a very, very important term. And it should always be remembered. The founding fathers of the United States said that we the people. That's actually one of the most important statements in history. And that's what's really needed now. And should be for any nation, really. Again, to help uh, not to conquer, but to transform the mindset of the planet to uh, adapt in this space. Because it's going to yeah. be very hard. It's definitely going to, you know, fall Brooking style. And that's inevitable, as we know. But that doesn't mean, you know, that that decides the, our fate for the rest of us and how we need humanity to expand, in my opinion. Yeah. You know, there's sad moments to it all. And, you know, but that, that shouldn't be the overruling factor. It's not fear that helped America yeah. to become what it is and potentially to go to where it was fully meant to be in the future mm -hmm. that was trying to be taken from us of our rightful heritage. And now it's, it has a chance to be put back on track as for the world, and I believe this, to be the infrastructure needed 
for the for the planet to reach out there and like President Trump said that our the term homeland will uh, share a much different meaning overall yes. it'll be the yes. whole earth you know and I think that's a positive vision you know uh, that we need to embrace and I, I, I say we we will embrace I don't think Stephen Hawking may have agreed to some of that again I could understand certain concepts of why but again that's a lot of fear and yes and if it's worry you know if others share that worry which they do that you know there may be hostile races intelligences out there you know then i'm like well then why didn't uh you know hawking say shut off the lights you know at night because <laughs> anyone that advanced could see for, for that far if we're studying atmospheres exosolar planets light years away they could surely yes. see our techno signature hey there's yes. uh, there's someone home and yes they can and that yeah, goes I mean, faster than radio transmission correct that's that's correct i mean the, the, one of the great ironies for our planet is the first really high high-powered television transmission which is is the most likely signal that's going to be picked up first because of the the energy levels of it is an interesting one it's adolf hitler opening the german olympics right in 1930 yep. that could be the first signal extraterrestrials receive isn't that a scary thought yes it is and there's a lot of conspiratorial bents and researchers people do that say that they did uh, work with them, and I thought, well, if and that was my basis of saying if it would be possible that if they did see that, then they were able to travel fast through space, which therefore time, if they were to hook up with them and uh, and give them certain technologies. But I, you know, I don't think they would be that stupid to reach out to the first visionary uh, on. Uh, on a scale from another planet and just offer them the technology that can, who knows, do what. I mean, so there's many ways of looking, but the the, the concept, I think, is sound to where, you know, uh, it should things should be considered and thought about as we adapt and learn until we get to these points to where we can roll all of these out. Ask like you said yourself. Keep asking stupid questions because then you rule out all those. It's it's not stupid anymore until you realize, you know, it's what helps uh, take you to the next step for the next mm -hmm. stupid question, which is the ultimate of where we're going to wind up. And yeah. I think that's where imagination and uh, uh, not enticing. Uh, what's that word? Encouraging and inspiration. Uh, comes yes. from and I and I see that's what definitely what you're about. Um, there's a question that I've been thinking, and uh, Mike kind of put it in the chat room a little, but I'll transform it. A couple months ago, I heard that NASA, someone was working on, let's say, put it put it to a better term. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. The new warp drive technology. Mm. What, what are your thoughts on that? And I know it's not a warp drive, but you know, for people's concept of Star Trek and grasp. Yeah, I mean, NASA have been doing some research into this. Obviously, it's, it's essentially theoretical physical research at the moment because the problem we have with such technologies is the amount of energy required to actually create the field we need to actually do this jump through space that we actually need. Unfortunately, we, we the energies that are required are so high 
you would almost need the energies of one, one of these super black holes that we've been observing to actually do it, which, of course, there's no way we could capture that material. But it's important they're doing the research into looking at the theoretical concepts of it. Mm -hmm. And some of the research has been quite interesting because some of the research which is pointing is that there is the possibility that given the energy levels, you could do it. And I'm finding that interesting, especially since the data is coming from mainstream science, not fringe science anymore. And this just shows you what can happen where you have something that was always considered to be a fringe science. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, it, they, regular science, if you like, mainstream science, catches up with the imaginators. And I think that's really good. And that's what we've had at the moment. And I think it's really good. We're on the starting blocks, I think, really, with this now. And I think it's got some traction. I think it's got some traction. So I'm very hopeful now that it's the beginning of the future space <laughs> travel. Yes, indeed. Um, well, it's coming down to the wire, sir. Uh, are you willing to be on again at some point? And oh, yes. Anytime, anytime. Yeah, and maybe, uh, you know what, I, I feel like reaching out to Dr. Gil Levin again, too. Maybe uh, I would like to have someone like you uh, speaking with him. I think that would be a good conversation in a show. Uh, and who knows, healthy debate, you know, maybe. Uh, who knows, maybe you're on the same path as him, which would be all the greater. He's 96 years old, sir. Wow. 96. Wow. He's still sharp as a tack. He still knows what was done, and I think he deserves his place in the history books and history. And uh, and you're the type of respectful guy that I think would give him that respect to, to hear him out. And uh, uh, who knows? Who knows what the shape? You know, he wanted to put on uh, proposals. He submitted many proposals. They were sent, you know, he was denied. The last one they sent home to him in a cab. How disrespectful is that? 96 yeah. years old. I mean, whatever reason, updated, upgraded microscopes, everything else that could potentially help us to where Viking was limited. And also I want the percolate tester next to it, you know. But, uh, you know, that would be quite the test there, wouldn't it, sir? But, uh, you know, either way. But um, aside from that, there was one more question I wanted to ask you. If any of these planets besides Earth, like you said, may have been hopped upon at one point or another in its millennia of histories of rises and falls of epochs, let alone any civilizations that may have been, besides Earth, what other planet in our solar system do you think would be the greatest candidate for that? Do you think it would be Mars, Venus... Or any of the even other ones, or even moons you could throw in. Uh, and again, I, you don't have to be married to this. Yeah, I think I think unfortunately we're looking at Mars. Mars seems to have stopped functioning as a valid planet about three billion years ago. So there just wasn't the period of time to allow a species to actually arrive and develop on that planet itself. We don't know why that happened, which is quite remarkable, but it still it still happened. So I don't actually think within our solar system we've had any of the planets able to develop evolutionary-wise species which could be greatly intelligent. They, and to they don't have to be indigenous. They don't have to be indigenous. Like like you said earlier, if they just happened by our planet, may, they may have stopped off and left even before us or even gave a crap about us. If they didn't know about us, they've seen the dinosaurs, like you said, if that possibility. Yeah. I mean, so, well, wait, I, explorers. I, I, 
Yeah, they could have visited any of the moons of Saturn and Jupiter, and they could have visited Mars. Mars was still a, bit, a valid planet to actually drop down on and have a good look at. There was no reason why they wouldn't have done it there, even our own moon, even, which 2001 A Space Odyssey, of course, talks about the Nazi Clark, where they deliberately buried something for us to actually find the monolith, of course. And that would be wonderful if that was to be the case and that would actually happen. Um, you never know. That brings up, uh, since you mentioned that, I was just going to ask you this too. You mentioned one of the moons there, uh, Iapetus. Iapetus, oh, what a, what a world. What a world that is. And what a wall. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you've got, you've got this incredible mountain range right around the equator. What an incredible shape! It's it's very bizarre, but it's very interesting. It's, a, it's an in, that's a world I'd love to get a space probe on to to have a close look at that. Oh, because indeed. that's an amazing. Oh, one yeah, side dark, one side bright, amazing. It's very odd, and you know, twelve miles high, twelve miles wide. That uh, that barrier. It's like a, I said, like a weight or something. But I, I don't. Who knows? It's fascinating. Uh, you know, I I tend to think maybe more toward the intelligence side. But then again, I'm crazy. I could think like that <laughs> and get away with it. Yes, it, it just it looks like a. It needs a lot of geological explanation because yeah. the interesting thing is it's bang around the equator. That's what makes it quite remarkable. You're very It's a very unusual thing. It's it's a fantastic. It's a fantastic feature on a, on a world. But Iapetus itself, one side dark, one side bright anyway, is a most bizarre feature anyway. I mean, we've got a feasible understanding of why that's the case, but it's still an unusual object. And what I find interesting about that, and you talk about looking and seeing, standing up and looking around, Iapetus was discovered by a man called Cassini. Mm -hmm. When he looked through it through a telescope, he saw it, made a note of it. When he looked for it again on the other side of the planet to calculate its orbit, he couldn't see it. A few nights later, it appeared again. So he came to the conclusion, just by looking at the pinpoint of light, that one side of it was bright and one side of it was dark. That wow. wasn't bad for a 17th century astronomer, using his eyes and using his intelligence, was it? And only hundreds of years later, he becomes verified. Ain't that something, sir? But now right. with our technology and what we could do, we could find out these things in months. In just a few yeah. span of years, and then soon the weeks, depending on how fast we're out there and how fast our tech grows and everything. Uh, oh, it's going to be fascinating. Well, damn, sir, it's down to the end of the show. Is there uh, any uh, final comments? Will you be coming to any conferences here in the U.S., or do you have any uh, books or upcoming books or anything that you would like to say to the listeners that you didn't get to say, sir? Well, people just go to my website, www.andrewlound.com, and you can see all the details I've put there. I am available if anybody wants to book me to do anything. I am doing Zoom uh, presentations now, and we're trying to set up a, a special presentation where I can actually use a theatre, just, just me, but you can actually do I can do all the acting as well then that I usually like to do and get that done. So if anybody's ever interested in booking me, I am available. <laughs> Um, I just caught a chime. Is there another caller on the line by chance? I don't want to, uh, you know, anybody? I'll wait five seconds. Five, four, three. Anyone on the line still? Or was that old? Two, one. All right, I guess not. All right, sir. Well, thank you very much, and we'll definitely be in touch again. And if there's ever an urgent time that you that there's a great discovery or something or something you want to talk about, please feel free, sir, to email me and we'll set up a show. 
Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. All right. Thank you. You're an amazing person, an amazing scientist, and uh, we respect you, sir. And we definitely look forward to hearing from you again. Keep stirring the pot. I'm all for all that. Right. <laughs> thank you, sir. Have a good night. <laughs> good night. So, everyone, that goes Mr. Lound, Andrew Lound. Again, I, I believe andrewlound.com. Let me ch click on that link there on the facesofmars.com. And uh, make sure that's the right uh, pronouncement. Yeah, andrewlound.com. And there's many things you can see and do there, links and click. I'm going to be going through a lot more of this. I definitely want to learn more about the Titanic things and see many of these uh, exceptional reenactments or documentaries. And that's good. The type of spirit that he has in mind takes no shit from anyone. And that's good. And I'm sure they respect him for that. Or at least they cannot pull away his respect for who he is for that. And uh, a lot of them are jealous too. And I'm, I'm sure that they're probably jealous of him. <laughs> you know, because he's making an impact that makes differences in people's lives. Not just you know, trying to gain tenure or stay at a certain position or, or political agenda. You know, he's out there and uh, inspiring, and that's the way to be. But, uh, you know, all I know, people, is that on that note, you know, all I want to do, you know, is to make the difference. And that's all I could do in my work, being aside from the things that I see that makes me so crazy. And in my, in my research, being an independent Mars researcher, image, image analyst, Im, image processor, yeah, I come at this from a different side of the street. And that don't, you, you can see that right there, those differences does not apply. We can still come to and talk about the, the main science of the, of the things. And you just respect each other's uh, positions, especially when it's all beneficial for us all, uh, and that's that's how that's how I feel. I'm just learning all the time, so I love that all the more. So think of me what you will, because all I know is that I'd love to change the world. Have a good night till next week. <laughs>